Hello and welcome to The Tally Ho, our podcast all about classic cult TV show The Prisoner, with me Eason. And me Bex. And today we're going to be talking about Ice Station Zebra. (laughs) No, we're not going to be doing that. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about episode 13 of The Prisoner, which is Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling. Mm. Yeah, it's a very unusual episode of The Prisoner for many reasons. The biggest of those reasons being that Patrick McGowan is barely in it. Uh, In fact, all of the new footage of him in the show was filmed in a single day, with lots of reuse of old footage of him in the bits where you actually see Patrick McGowan. Although, of course, number six is in it quite a lot. And uh, the whole thing was necessitated really by Patrick McGowan not being available because he was making Ice Station Zebra. So they had to come up with a way of continuing with the show, even if their leading man wasn't there. So the show was shot in two main production blocks. The first one, which covered episodes uh, 1 to 13, which would have obviously begun with Arrival, I think was scheduled to end with uh, Many Happy Returns originally. Mm -hmm. And then this second production block was done to film a further four episodes. And these extra four episodes would have taken the total order of Prisoner episodes to 17, which would have been the number that Lou Grade would have been able to shop to the US, for example, as uh, the Prisoner was being sold internationally. Yeah, I think if it had gone on to make a whole second season of The Prisoner, I think the idea was that this would have been episode one of a second season of 13, but obviously that didn't happen. Um, It was decided there were only going to be 17. So this one, well, it obviously got put out in the UK in this order, but interestingly, when they screened it in the US the following year, this got moved to episode nine in the order, got um, chanted forward a bit. Yeah, so in the potential hiatus that would have existed between filming both production blocks, that's when Patrick McGowan went off to film Ice Station Zebra. That was done for several reasons. I mean, he was a internationally recognised star as well. But I think some of his pay packet would have probably helped to actually get uh, the remaining episodes of The Prisoner actually filmed as well. Yeah, I think it's not a secret that the show was quite over budget. At this point, um, I mean, the, the production values are much greater than most of the other sort of shows of its era would be. It costs an awful lot to make. Um, I mean, it, you don't necessarily see it in some episodes like this, but you can clearly see it in some of the other episodes. So well, how high the production values were for a TV show made in the 60s, particularly in the UK. And uh, yeah, the I think he certainly supplemented some of the costs of finishing the show with the money that he got paid for being in a a big Hollywood movie. And it should be noted that in this final production block of four episodes, uh, there are some notable uh, behind-the-scenes changes as well. A lot of the crew were brand new for this final block. They'd been let go or moved on after the first 13. Uh, Notably, the uh, rift with Mark Steen had probably become so severe uh, quite early on that it precipitated uh, his leaving the series um, after that first production block, so this is the first of the main ones that you know he you know he wasn't involved in at all. Yeah. As we'll go into great detail about, there are several reasons why this feels like a very atypical episode. One by necessity uh, of not having Magoon around, but also maybe it was an interesting attempt to kind of mess around with the format a little bit. Mm. And um, I think it's not a secret that many people really don't like do not forsake me oh my darling (laughs) Um, I think in this episode of the podcast having watched it a couple of times now as well 
certainly it's not the strongest episode of The Prisoner, but there are some very interesting elements in it, which uh, I think are quite relevant to the overall mythology of the show. And despite its weaknesses, there are some really interesting things that happen that I think we'll kind of talk about over the next couple of hours. Yeah, I think it's also an interesting counterpoint to the rest of the show where you can see what a show like The Prisoner almost could have become if it hadn't had someone like McGowan driving it in the direction that it was. Because in some ways, this does feel like more of a a traditional ITC-style spy craft show, basically. Yes, I remember that its plot, its general feeling, it doesn't yeah, it doesn't feel like the prisoner, mm. which is a which is a big negative, I think, for the episode. Uh, to me, it reminds me of kind of a cross between uh, the champions and you know the Avengers. Mm. <laughs> it's kind of a very science fiction story. It doesn't have any of the Magoan led sort of philosophy behind it. There's mm. very little substance to the uh, you know the general ideas that uh, Magoan liked to put in about the themes of the individual and free will and uh, potentially you know keeping the village as this faceless enemy here it becomes a very real threat to people in you know in the outside world as well mm. but yeah it doesn't it just feels like a very traditional ITC style show of its era and I think it just goes to show as well how The Prisoner was just far better than this. The other episodes were superlative and and Mm -hmm. this one probably would have sat quite well as an average episode of uh, one of its ITC stablemates. But as an episode of The Prisoner, it can't stand alongside the other 16 episodes. Yeah, and I think you really miss the presence of McGowan as an actor in it, in that, you know, he makes some of the other weaker episodes of The Prisoner utterly watchable over and over again. And in this one, you really feel the absence of him, particularly at the end when he wakes up and it is him. And it almost feels like, oh yeah, this is this is who number six is. It it just doesn't feel quite right. I mean, we're, we'll probably get onto this a bit later, talking about M- Nigel Stock, but that there are a lot of things about this episode that, that just don't feel quite right. But it's still a very interesting one to talk about. So the format of the Tally Ho podcast in this episode is going to be our usual uh, discussion and dissection of the episode, Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling. After that, we're going to take a bit of a tangent into (laughs) um, the results of this poll or question we put out uh, to all of our Twitter followers, which was to do with who people thought would make a good number two past or present actor who would have played well against uh, Patrick McGowan in the original show. Yeah, we, we got a lot of response to that and we're going to go through some of our favourite ones because there's some really good suggestions. <laughs> yeah. And then after that, we have a wonderful guest interview. We were delighted to have some time to chat to the writer and actor Rupert Booth, who wrote the wonderful Patrick McGowan biography, Not a Number. And he joined us to talk a little bit about Do Not Forsake Me and My Darling, but more broadly about his passion for The Prisoner and for the life of Patrick McGowan. And it's a really interesting chat that covers most of uh, McGowan's career. Yeah, it feels appropriate in some way to uh, to talk about McGowan as a person after the episode in which he's not in it. (laughs) (laughs) And then after that, we'll have our usual news roundup from Rick Davey of the Mutual website. Yep, so that's the plan. Let's crack on. 
he was able to transmit the psyche of one person into another. The mind of one man into another? Impossible, I don't believe it. Where is this Seltzman? So, Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling was written by Vincent Tilsley. Who also wrote uh, The Chimes of Big Ben, I think. Yes. I think he wrote two episodes, this is the second. Yeah, although he's spoken often, I think, of the fact that this particular script was quite heavily rewritten by David Tomlin. Yeah, I think it's clear that Tomlin functioned as a, a kind of de facto second-in-command, particularly with McGoohan not around and Mark Steen no longer being involved in the production. Yeah, I wonder if it would be the equivalent of him being sort of a almost like a deputy showrunner in mm. the absence of McGoohan. I mean, I think, as we said at the top of the episode, these were the episodes where Mark Steen had gone, uh, McGoohan was in full control of everything, and he was really directing how this show was going and how it was ultimately going to conclude. And I think David Tomlin's fingerprints are over a lot of the last few. I mean, this is one of them where he uh, rewrote it, and a similar story arises with the really interesting backstory to our next episode, which is uh, Living in Harmony. Mm. And this one was directed by Pat Jackson, who's directed several other episodes, and this is the last one that he directed in The Prisoner. And there are some very notable guest stars as well. So obviously we've got Nigel Stock playing the Colonel slash number six for most of the episode. Yeah, he was, I mean, he yeah he was extremely famous for a huge number of TV and film roles. Um, I remember him most notably for his role as Dr. Watson, mm. uh, opposite Peter Cushing's Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, that must have been not that long before he he did The Prisoner. Mm. Um, it's sort of late 60s, but but before, before this would have been shot. And we've also got uh, this week's number two, played by Clifford Evans, who doesn't really get an awful lot to do because so much of it takes place away from the village. Yeah. But he's he's good when he's there. And, uh, of course, Janet, uh, the fiancé, played by Zena Walker. And her father, Sir Charles, played by John Wentworth. So this really isn't a normal episode of The Prisoner. Um, unusually, it begins with a cold open, which is seen once again in a later episode of the show. <laughs> yeah, and it really sets the tone for this being an unusual episode, because it's a bit jarring to suddenly have a cold open before the credits. And then, of course, the credits are then quite different to uh, to what we're used to. Um, I think that there's a lot of ways that this is very atypical as an episode. You know, it's it's more like a proper sci-fi story. Um, it isn't anything to do with number six trying to escape the village or the village trying to find out why he resigned. It's, yeah, it, it's it's odd in lots of ways. Yeah, and I think although one could argue that this is an episode which has been put together largely in McGowan's absence. And I think it is documented that he wasn't happy with the episode when mm. he returned from filming Ice Station Zebra and saw what had been done and had to kind of complete his scenes. Um, there are some really interesting things which happened during the episode, which, again, although they might be continuity issues or things that were embellishments added by Tilsley or David Tomlin, they might actually be relevant to the show's mythology, even if they are unintentional. Yeah, I think you can look for a slightly mundane explanation for why certain things about this episode don't necessarily make sense given the the continuity of the whole series which we'll talk about um where, where you could simply explain it by saying well the writer probably hadn't 
known what was in a lot of the other episodes that had already gone by and and with McGowan not around and Mark Steen gone you know maybe there wasn't a great deal of continuity in terms of making everything make complete sense in number six's life before he went to the village but I think if you try to look for in-universe explanations uh, if you ignore what was going on behind the scenes and say well it's it's a part of the prisoner so how do we explain this I think there's actually some interesting ways that you can explain some of the things that appear to be inconsistencies, but actually maybe give some interesting insights into Number Six's past life. And given that McGowan was actually away filming uh, a Cold War spy thriller at the time, <laughs> this episode really, well, it potentially fills in some backstories of Number Six, which... I think also fit the mould of making the episode and Number Six's uh, pre-village employment elements of a of an interesting Cold War spy thriller as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in this pre-credit scene, we're in an office and there are three men who are looking at slides of various locations, trying to work out if any of the images or the contents of the images provide any clues. Um, I think the the locations are Loch Ness. The Yorkshire Moors, yeah. the Eiffel Tower, and then curiously, the older gentleman who we learn is uh, Sir Charles asks the person who's uh, moving through the slides, "What's number six? <laughs> yes, and he replies, "Hopelessly overexposed." <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so they, they they look that some of the pictures are overexposed and some are underexposed, and they're trying to crack a code that they believe might be contained within these pictures. Some of them are absolutely certain that there must be a code in there. Others are questioning whether they're looking for something that, that doesn't really exist. You know, are these just a selection of random pictures? At, at one point, one of them says that you know, he, he was a, a brilliant scientist, but not much of a photographer or something <laughs> like that. And uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're looking for something, some kind of clue that they think is is in these pictures and there's a really nice analysis of this in the uh, fallout guide uh, by fiona moore and alan stevens where they mentioned that this this could be a slightly cheeky commentary on the futility of trying to find meaning in the episodes of the prisoner <laughs> themselves that no matter which order you put them in or how you shuffle them around you could be looking for a code that just isn't there <laughs> <laughs> and although it's reasonably clear that uh, we're not in the village it is funny that they make a reference to number six this time in the context of slides mm. uh, rather than the person again sort of suggesting that you know his presence is is there it's hinted at throughout the episode however uh, obtusely but it's nice to have that there um, and I like the fact that that first shot of Sir Charles' desk has a couple of phones on it because we're so used to seeing uh, number two being in you know the green dome with mm. a variety of phones around him and it's just a it's a nice kind of visual callback to the to the way that uh, people in power can actually appear very similar um, irrespective of which side they might actually be on you know whether it's the village or what appears to be some kind of higher sort of civil service office uh, somewhere in uh, in central london yeah, and it's it's such a lovely visual contrast because in number two's lair in the village, we're we're so used to seeing those incredibly stylized curved phones in in bold colours, 
And here we've got a very much more traditional sedate office with big, chunky, traditional rotary phones, but one of them is still red and stands right out on the desk. It's it's like a, a, a clear visual clue that this is not the village and potentially nothing to do with the village, but the power structures are maybe the same. People are giving orders, they're getting orders from somewhere, there's a big red phone of doom on someone's desk, no matter where in the world they are. Um, so, you know, is this Sir Charles character a, a, a sort of number two just in a completely different context? Yeah, and that idea has come up before. I mean, most notably, it's uh, Leo McKern's conversation back in the chimes of Big Ben, hmm. I believe. And I like the fact that an element of this episode is to discuss the nature of whose side people might actually be on and whether there is a difference. Mm. Um, and certainly whether it's ever clear which side number six uh, was on before he was captured by the village as well. Yeah. And it, I also like in this scene, you can see in the in the back of the office in certain shots, you can see uh, busts on pedestals <laughs> that are very reminiscent of the ones that you get in uh, in the village and particularly the ones that uh, Madame Professor <laughs> used to make. <laughs> oh yeah, back in the general. Yeah. yeah. And we also get the first music cue where there, there's a repeated refrain in this episode of a Scottish folk song called My Bonnie Lies Over the Ocean, uh, which is, is very simple lyrics if, if you're not familiar with it. It's My Bonnie Lies Over the Ocean, My Bonnie Lies Over the Sea, my Bonnie lies over the ocean, so bring back my Bonnie to me. <laughs> and this cue is used repeatedly in, in lots of different ways throughout the whole episode, but it's never used in any other episode. And uh, it's, I think it, it's going to fit quite nicely with some of the themes we're going to talk about, about distance, about people being apart, about being unable to return to mm. one another. So as the three men are looking at the slides... It focuses down on the central mystery of the episode as a picture of an older gentleman appears on one of the slides and it appears they are looking for a man named Saltzman. Mm, isn't everybody? <laughs> <laughs> so now we then go to the opening credits after this uh, opening scene. It's unusual for several reasons. It starts off with the normal shots and music, but then it transitions into something slightly different. Yeah, so some of the shots of um, number six driving around London seem to be different to before. And then after he wakes up in his room in the village and, and looks out of the window, instead of the familiar back and forth that we get with, you know, who are you, the new number two, what do you want information, that's all gone. Mm. Instead, we get very extended footage of um, helicopter footage of the village as... Well, what we'll come to see is actually the colonel arriving in the village by helicopter. But it, it goes on for quite a long time and it's it's wordless. And it it feels very unsettling when you're used to the, the back and forth between number six and number two. Yeah, it really throws you off and, and makes you realise that this is going to be a very different episode. Yeah, and you see lots and lots of footage of village residents just hanging out. Mm. Um, you know, it does make it look like quite a nice tourist resort <laughs> as, as they're flying around it. So as the helicopter lands, uh, we go to a shot of number two, played by Clifford Evans in this episode, who is watching, I think, stock footage of uh, number six pacing up and down in his cottage. 
And it's notable actually throughout this episode that there is a real overuse of stock footage mm. and some quite, well, by the prisoner standards, some quite poor uh, rear projection and mat work as well that's mm. been done to um, put the episode together. It is, a, it's, I mean, there are elements which make this episode technically, I think, as you said at the very beginning, not as strong as the others. Mm. Um, and it And it starts off, you know, with the first shot in the village. <laughs> yeah, so then a uh, character called the Colonel arrives, played by Nigel Stock. At one point you see footage of him walking into the number two space in the Green Dome from above, and it's a completely different guy. It's not Nigel Stock at all. And then it cuts to a shot of him closer up, and it's Nigel Stock again. It's very strange, very strange. So he, he's he's arrived in the village, uh, number two offers him breakfast, but he, he doesn't want any. He says that he's been sent by the highest authority, but he doesn't know what he's doing there. And he's there to get his instructions from number two, which is quite interesting because this implies that there is a great deal of compartmentalization of information where people don't know unless they actually need to or they don't know what they're doing until the moment comes when they absolutely have to know. So he's been sent there with no clue of what he's going to do when he gets there. Yeah, and it's unclear who this highest authority actually refers to. Potentially, it could be someone very senior in, I don't know, the British government or something. It could be Sir Charles. It's un- I mean, that that is a term that has meaning, I suppose, mm. which it can be sort of, you know, it can be, I don't know, the Prime Minister or the Queen or something. It be, you know, it can be, a, you know, it can be that kind of statement if we are talking about a world of, spies and and uh, government level well high level government uh, civil servants who are talking about you know who the highest authority actually is and it's the first time i think we've had reference to an external person who might be sending people to actually perform tasks in the village yeah we know that occasionally number two gets shouted at on the big red phone <laughs> of doom by someone so, you know, is is that the higher authority or is that just another person in the ladder? You know, maybe no one knows who, that, who the ultimate higher authority is because everything is so secretive. Yeah, and the colonel is asked his opinion of number six based on the footage which is playing on the screen. And the colonel says that he's never met him. So although we don't know what the colonel's line of work is, Prior to arriving in the village, it's clear that he's never come across number six, either in his status in the village or in his former life as well. And uh, I think he says something like, well, anyone who's pacing up and down like that is is rather stupid. And uh, number two corrects him and says that he couldn't be more wrong and sort of says that, you know, number six is a very special person. And again, this is one of the few elements of the show which fits with the overall context of how the number twos treat number six which is they view number six as a very important uh, resident in the village yeah and then he asks the colonel if he's heard of someone called jacob seltzman mm. so immediately we've got the same name being used by these two completely disparate groups of people the same person they were talking about in the cold open and when the colonel says no number two says well you know in your line of business i suppose you wouldn't have done which it asks the question of well, what is the colonel's line of business? Just because he's called the colonel, maybe he's not still a colonel, or in whose army is he a colonel? Mm. Or, you know, a colonel of what? Um, is he retired? Is, is he moved into something nefarious? Or maybe he is part of the military and everything is connected. 
Mm. And that is a theme that's come up before, sort of the military connections involved in uh, running or utilising the village for their own purposes. Mm. But whatever his line of business is, it's unsurprising that he hasn't heard of this uh, groundbreaking, mind-swapping scientist. (laughs) So uh, number two continues to very handily explain to the colonel and to the audience (laughs) that uh, Seltzman is a neurologist who was doing research into thought transference and had successfully developed technology that was capable of moving the psyche of one man into another. Uh, The main problem, however, is that nobody knows where Seltzman is. Everybody's looking for him. Mm. And the last person to have seen Seltzman was number six. Yeah, which actually does potentially fill in some really interesting aspects of Six's backstory. I don't know what Six's job would have been in the real world, but if he's interacting with a guy involved in, you know, mind swap, you know, experiments or thought transference, as they refer to it, um, either he's uh, a spy of some kind, I think, which does fit in with, you know, the overall feelings that that's we might have been. It also fits with the theory that he was a scientist in some capacity. Maybe he interacted with him that way. Or maybe some amalgamation of the two. Or maybe he ran, or maybe he was just, you know, a, you know, somebody for hire in the civil service who would go on missions. And, and one of the last things he did was this. I mean, whatever it was, he was involved in probably tracking people and and uh, and getting important state level secrets. Mm. Uh, and maybe, you know, maybe even stealing those secrets <laughs> as well. I mean, it's unclear if what he was doing was was on the right side or the wrong side. Yeah. And when the colonel is sceptical about whether this mind-swapping is, is really mm. possible, number two says something quite interesting. He says, if if I told you ten years ago that we'd put a rocket around the moon, would you have believed me? Mm. Now, who is the we in this context? Yeah. We put a rocket around the moon. This is before the, before the, the Apollo moon landing. Mm. So, you know, a couple of years later, it would have said, would you have believed we'd put a man on the moon? But... This phrase here, that we'd do it, is it uh, humanity in general? Is it the West, the East, uh, the Russians, the Americans? Are the village secretly behind every uh, um, space exploration program in the world? Who knows? Yeah, and there was that curious statement by number six once where he said he'd like to be the first man on the moon. Yes. <laughs> uh, so there's there is, you know, an interesting reuse of that uh of that idea. And again, there are a few things in this episode like references to uh going around the moon that do actually place the prisoner in a specific time period as well. Mm. So often the show seems to avoid giving any direct reference to when it's set. I mean, it's clearly visually a 60s show, but it is a timeless one as well, and they deliberately don't reference when this is happening. Now, firstly, there are references to moon landings. Later on, there are things that we see in the episodes outside of the village, which also start to put some uh, specific time time constraints on uh, on when this is happening which is unusual for an episode and i think it's something that they would have probably preferred or mcguin would have preferred not to include simply because it then adds a date to uh to the episodes yeah and then number two reveals what they want the the thought transference technology mm-hmm. for which is uh, he, he talks about the way that sometimes countries will exchange spies that have been captured he says, imagine if we could return someone else's spy, but with the mind of one of our own people. 
we could break the security of any nation. Um, which, a, a, again, begs the question of, are they on the side of a particular nation? Or is the village thinking, actually, if we get this technology, we, the village, could break any nation on Earth because we are outside of them all? Yeah, so that that's probably the most telling thing that we've ever heard about the village because it could imply, like you say, that the villagers outside of a of a simple east-west conflict they're kind of a you know a shadow organization which is actually running a completely independent operation which would that which would then make them well a threat to everyone and potentially unknown to everyone as well which Mm. is why they're doing such a good job of harvesting people from all over the place and trying to gain their you know gain their information gain their secrets if that is the case it does put weight on the value of number six. Whatever his former job was, it makes him extremely valuable as a source of information that would boost not the East or the West, but actually an enterprise which was completely independent and wholly more nefarious. Yeah, and possibly this is me having just read too many spy novels, but I thought that when... In the real world, when those kind of spy exchanges happen, that the the spy that gets returned to you is never actually put back in any position of authority because you don't know if you can trust them. Mm. They might have been brainwashed. They might have defected and so on. That They essentially become Mm. useless. So I don't know how useful it really would be. Although I suppose you could send them back and they could still, you know, get information from people and, and all the rest of it. But that, that's probably me just watching, you know, too many John le Carre adaptations, you know. <laughs> and although it's not the same colonel, um, in Chimes of Big Ben, that's exactly the conversation that the colonel has with number six when he is returned to uh, London. Hmm. Because he says, you know, we don't know where you've been. You've, you've disappeared. You've come back potentially from the other side of the Iron Curtain. And we don't know if you've defected and you're and you're working for the other side now Mm. so yeah i completely agree with that and i wonder if this is another link between the kind of spycraft that is being discussed notably in the episodes that are uh written by uh vincent tilsley as well Mm. maybe he likes this idea he's trying to bring it in so back in this episode number two takes the colonel to the hospital and it is a hospital isn't it yeah Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he takes him to a room which he refers to as the amnesia room, uh, which they use to erase people's memories. Yeah, so it's explained that uh, there's there's a, a chap in there at the time who's having his memory of the village erased because he was so cooperative. He spilled all of the secrets within a couple of days and they're going to make him forget about the village and put him back into circulation. Yeah, this is very odd. This is the first time they've ever... So, well... So usually what they do is they refer to taking people from the outside world and keeping them in the village to extract their secrets. In this case, it's the first indication that the village has a policy of returning people. That's mm-hmm. the first thing. But also it can return people back to the real world with no memory of having been in the village. Now, this means that, you know, once they've got information, they can send people back. It also means that they could take the same person again and again and again, and they would have no memory. Now, one interesting theory about about number six is that, you know, you could actually view each episode as, you know, him arriving for the first time. That's why the credits are always extended and show 
uh, the same the same thing of him being captured and waking up in the village and it's a really interesting idea that this hints at potentially number six having been captured multiple times and returned brainwashed i don't think that's actually happened um necessarily but the fact that the village has this capability is uh, a very interesting addition that always makes you think i mean it's the nice thing about the prison it always drops these little details in which make you feel that although it probably hasn't happened it does make you doubt whether it could have happened Mm. and it makes the village all the more scary for the fact that it can actually do these things yeah and it it makes a a kind of in-world logic as well because if they're kidnapping that many people the village is going to get really full really Mm. quickly and we've seen them recycle people's numbers um, again and again and yes there's a graveyard there but it's not massive (laughs) so what's happening to all of the people Um, you know we've sometimes wondered what happens to some of the support staff and the scientists Mm. who go but maybe they get their memories of being in the village so they don't remember Um, now Clearly, they were never going to ever really return number six to the real world, I don't think. That the sort of implication, well, certainly in Dance of the Dead, the, the suggestion is that they've made the world think he's dead. Yeah, because they send the body out, don't they? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, and they seem to want to win him over to their side and bring him into their own organisation on, on quite a few occasions. But it would make sense to do this with other people, particularly if they do reveal their secrets so quickly that you can return them within a couple of days and no one would really be that concerned about where they'd gone mm. you know if someone had been gone for six months and suddenly you send them back everyone would be like well where the hell have you been um but if if you can do it that quickly and send someone back then you don't have to look after them in the village for the next 50 years <laughs> and put them in the old folks home and give them a job you can uh, you can just send them back out into the world with no no memory and no one would get suspicious because there wouldn't be so many people just vanishing all over the place all the time. And I wonder if, uh, given previous episodes which have shown that the village is capable of doing nefarious things to its own people, mm. you know, one wonders if the endless cycle of uh, number two actually means that maybe they get mind wiped and sent back <laughs> afterwards without knowing that they were taken to the village in order to break number six. Yeah. And I suppose also if if you knew that a particular target was naturally very cooperative and you send them back into the world as you say you could repeatedly kidnap someone Mm. and you know well that person they're probably going to tell us everything again in in a year's time because it was so easy it's probably always going to be that easy you just grab someone every year for a long weekend and find (laughs) out what what new things they've learned in their job so then we go to uh number six's cottage and we see what look like military police appear in the village um and they're all holding batons um, now, these guys haven't really been seen since the general, which was mm. the first indication that there were military police working in the village. And I think there we speculated that maybe it's because the village rents out its its facility to the military, um, if indeed it's not even run by the military. I don't know. <laughs> and what they do is they uh, find number six and they take him away by uh, Minimoke, um, presumably to the hospital. Yes, and uh, conveniently without really getting a good look at his face because it's clearly not Patrick McGoon. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, back in the um, amnesia room, we see that uh, number two is showing the colonel a dummy run of what he calls the Seltzman machine, which is the thought transference machine that Seltzman, uh, the scientist, uh, developed. 
and it's kind of a it's quite a hokey looking setup <laughs> you know it's uh it's two chairs there's a blue and a red light that kind of glow above each one sound of crackling and lightning etc and clearly it's one of those things which is you know a common sci-fi trope you put Two people, one in each chair, put a colander-like device on their head, <laughs> connect them up, pump some electricity through it. Some weird glowy lights happen, there's usually some sparking, and then their minds are transferred. Yeah, it's uh, there are so, there are so many ways that you can do it. If pop culture has taught me anything, it's usually that there's some kind of cursed fairground machine or mystical book that you're holding with someone and you uh, have a Freaky Friday incident happen. But here we get the proper kind of full-on, slightly mad scientist lab style setup with lots of glowy lights and and uh crackling and general ominous science going on yeah and they actually do i think use the sound of the lightning strike yeah. from uh the opening credits in this bit as well so why why there's such a loud burst of electricity i don't know <laughs> um but it's nice that they've managed to use that sound effect uh, uh in this section as well and then what we do is we cut to number two who is watching number six, who was brought there by the military police. He's in one of these chairs. He has uh, a set of kind of steampunky goggles on. <laughs> and uh, he gets told that, uh, whilst he's being watched over, that tomorrow uh, he, that's number six, will wake up a new man. Mm. Not in a Giles way. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the best episodes of Buffy. <laughs> Sleep well, my friend. And forget us. Tomorrow you will wake up a new man. So we then cut to uh, a POV sequence of number six. So a bit of Magoo voiceover. That's probably all he actually uh, contributed to this um, uh, for this chunk of the episode. Um, he wakes up uh, seemingly in his own bedroom again, in his own cottage. And he's... Well, it's unclear whether he's actually at home uh, back in London or in the village, because obviously the village have a replica of his room available. And uh, the one notable thing we see is as he wakes up uh, directly opposite him on the dresser is uh, a picture of a woman who we later learn is Janet, hmm. who is his fiance. And this is the first sort of notable thing that we see in this room, which implies that one, we haven't seen this before. And two, this is probably not in the village. This is him somewhere else, presumably back home again. And this woman is somebody important to him. Yeah, so he goes to the window, peeks over the curtains, and he sees the London street outside. So which you is, know that he is back home. Yeah, which is probably why they choose not to include that uh, so directly in the uh, in the opening credits as well, to have that moment replicated here. And there are a few moments of previous episodes, notably Arrival, which are replicated in this episode as well. Mm. But they have a bit of a spin on them. Uh, so they're not they're not the canonical sequences we've seen, but they get reused in a slightly different way. Yeah, and you, you get a, this internal monologue that you hear of number six. It's spoken by Patrick McGowan and played in voiceover, where he mentions something about Janet's birthday present. Um, so evidently it's Janet's birthday t um, tomorrow. Yeah. And uh, he's got a diary on his desk. He looks at what's in the diary for today. There's no date on it interestingly it just says today at the yeah. top um it says that uh his car is due in for a service yeah. he's got lunch with sir charles and then he's got a dentist appointment at three o'clock and he thinks to himself no i've got to catch the dentist appointment because sir charles lunches go on a long time <laughs> um but you know that's okay because he's the boss 
I find it really strange to get an internal monologue from number six because I, I know it's an artistic device, it's a narrative device at this point because he hasn't seen his reflection yet and although we suspect what's happened, we haven't seen it. I mean, the, when he looks at his watch, it's clearly not Magoon's arm, it's clearly mm. Nigel Stock's arm. Um, but that reveal hasn't happened yet. So you know, we, we're getting this in a monologue from him in order to, to cue us into the fact that this is number six inside, even though it isn't number six outside. But I, I find it so odd because six is inner thoughts were the one thing that he defended above all else. Mm. You know, the one thing that he would not give away was what was in his mind. Mm. Um, you know, he, he would choose his words very carefully when talking to people, but he, he would not reveal what his, you know, what his motivations were, why he resigned. He would guard how he felt quite strongly. And that included not just from the village authorities, but in some ways from the audience watching it. And so it, it feels really unnatural to me to suddenly get this direct uh, channel into exactly what he's thinking. Because being able to eavesdrop on what he's thinking is precisely the thing that the village above all else would have loved to be able to do and could never do. Yes, it's very jarring, simply because you would hope that that behaviour, which we've only seen from him in the context of the village, was part of him anyway and would have existed in him in his life outside of the village as well. I mean, he would have been probably closed off from people and unwilling to uh, to kind of speak freely about things, especially if his job demanded it as well. So why suddenly he goes into this kind of jaunty you know <laughs> wander around his you know his house as he's uh talking about what he's going to do it just seems a bit out of character and it almost seems from mcguin's you know performance uh, as a voiceover artist here it seems like he's playing it a bit tongue-in-cheek as well i think he's i think he's not happy about this as well it's a bit too i mean even he would have decided to play it differently if he felt it was sort of a good part of the story and maybe a, a real reflection of six's character here he's just kind of Going through the motions, I think. Yeah, he he, he seems far too sort of happy-go-lucky. He said, like, "Oh, Sir Charles's lunches—they do go on." Um, but 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 also, what what you realise as the sequence goes on is that his his memory has been erased. His memory, of the village has been erased. Mm. He clearly thinks that it's a year ago, because as we will find out, it's a year to the day since he was kidnapped. Yeah, because he disappeared we find out the day before Janet's birthday. And this is now the day before Janet's birthday. Evidently one year on, but his mind has effectively had the last year erased, so he thinks it's one year before. Yeah, and this is a critical day, potentially, in prisoner history. Yes. Because this is the day, technically, when he is going to resign. Yeah. But there's nothing in his demeanour or his manner when he's, you know, talking about, you know, taking the car in for the service, having his lunch with Sir Charles, a dentist appointment, etc., that implies that he is set on resigning today. Yeah, it doesn't say 3pm dentist, 4pm resign your job yeah. and, and run off on a holiday somewhere. Yeah, he's in a good mood. I mean, he's yeah. not, you know, he's not the guy from the opening credits who 
you know, steadfastly walks into uh, well, George Mark Steen's office, <laughs> um, you know, and hands in his resignation. There's something, something weird about this, but it's odd that they choose that specific time to have him uh, sort of returning to his um, sort of former life. Yeah. Um, now, and this is one of the things that makes me start to formulate an in-universe explanation for some of the oddities about this episode. Because, let, okay, let, let's say that this was the state of mind that he woke up with on the day that he resigned. So what was it that made him completely lose it mm. and decide to storm into the office and, and shout and rant and rave and slam the, the desk mm. and storm out of there? Presumably it wasn't the bill for his car service. <laughs> Presumably it wasn't the dentist, unless it was a really bad trip to the dentist. If if I'm building an in-universe theory, it was something that happened at lunch with Sir Charles. Yeah. It was something that came up at that lunch, something he learned, something he was asked to do, something that incensed him so much that it, it wouldn't have been the only thing. It would have been something that was building for a long mm. time. But my theory is that something in that lunch, something happened, something was said that was the final straw and made him think, I cannot put up with this situation anymore. This has made me too angry. And given the timing as well, is it even possible that an element of his decision is something to do with the mystery surrounding this this Seltzman as well? Mm. It's un- Yeah, it's it's unclear, but it's a... It's an interesting choice of date to send uh, to send number six back because it's a date that holds tremendous importance in what the village is trying to find out. Although in this episode, it doesn't appear that they're here to understand or question six about why he resigned. They want to know where Seltzman is. Mm-hmm. Unless, you know, that is the mystery of why he resigned. It is Seltzman and they're basically addressing that question through a slightly different means. So he's wandering around the house. Um, one little interesting shot, I noticed it just when he walks past. He walks past a mirror, and what you see in the mirror is uh, clearly a shot of a crew member or cameraman who's there first. <laughs> yeah, uh, wearing a bright white shirt. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, more importantly for the actual story, Six uh, walks past uh, this mirror, and he does a double take as he realises that the man looking back at him in the mirror is not... The, well, it's not his face, uh, Patrick McGowan. It is the face of the Colonel. Da, da, da. <laughs> yeah, so clearly what's happened is that the village have used the Seltzman machine to swap the minds of Number Six and the Colonel. So although this is Number Six's mind and his internal voice, his mind now inhabits the body of the Colonel who is looking back at him in the mirror. It's not quite Giles seeing a demon when he, when he gets <laughs> up in the morning, but, you know, it's up there. <laughs> and then we cut to um, a series of unusual uh, flashbacks to uh, the Seltzman procedure happening itself. And it's intercut with uh, not only six sort of in the, you know, in the chair with the goggles on, but also there are, well, there's reused footage uh, from Arrival and uh, Free For All. And I, like, it's it's unclear what's happening. I mean, it, you know, it has it has a moment where he says... You know, I'm here to find out who are the, you know, is it who are the prisoners and who are the warders mm-hmm. and, you know, moments like that. I think what's maybe happening here is he's actually either remembering his time in the village or this is sort of recapping the rewind in number six's memory to take him back to the point 
before he turned up in the village. It's kind of just showing us all the things which are being erased. So as we as we heard in the conversation between number two and the colonel back in the village, they can send people back with no memory of having been there. Mm. So um, what's happened is Six has been returned to the real world, although it's his mind in the body of the colonel and he doesn't actually remember being in the village yeah. at all. And it's And it's, in his mind, it's, as we later find out, um, a year ago as well. Yeah, and and, you, and as part of this montage, you you hear number two repeating the name Seltzman, Seltzman. He's clearly been programmed with this idea in his head that he needs to find Seltzman, and that he, at the very least, needs to realise that what's been done to him is related to Seltzman's mm. experiments and that he needs to find Seltzman in order to try and fix it. So Six in the body of the Colonel is uh, very confused, but that's broken slightly by the fact that the doorbell rings and outside is a lady named Janet, who uh, we learn is number six's fiance, a fiance who hasn't been mentioned in the show uh, before. <laughs> and she is looking at uh, clearly the colonel who is in number six's house. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the face that she sees in front of her. And she asks, you know, has she seen him? She, you know, she's seen uh, number six's car outside and she wants to know if he's back. So clearly, uh, maybe he has, you know, obviously he has a job in which uh, he can disappear for periods of time. In this case, um, she clearly hasn't seen him for a very, very long time. And she walks into the house. She's familiar with the place. And she looks for uh, number six inside um, his house. And she gets more concerned. And she asks the colonel, uh, who are you? How do you get his car? Clearly trying to work out why there is a guy living in uh, number six's house and number six is somebody who she's been looking for and waiting for for a very long time. Yeah, so her, her initial excitement of thinking that he must be back soon mm. changes to suspicion of this strange guy that she's clearly never seen before. Mm. Why Why is he there and ha- how come he's got number six's car and house and is, is hanging around? One thing I would like to know is how did Janet see the car outside? Mm. You know, does it, does she live nearby? I mean, it, it's slightly heartbreaking to think that maybe she she passes by it every day, hoping to see mm. that he's come back, which is making me quite sad thinking <laughs> about it. That, that something must have caused her to to go there to actually see that something's happening. It could even be that someone from the village has not tipped her off, but has done something to make her decide to mm. to go there. But we have also seen there has been a time when Number Six's car has been parked outside his house, seemingly in the in the time window when he hasn't been in London. Yes, because Mrs Butterworth had Number Six's car mm. and it was parked outside the house. So how come Janet didn't see the car when that was going on? Yeah, and wasn't concerned by Mrs Butterworth being in his house and yeah. actually being somebody else as well. So... Um, so you do wonder what the what the extent of manipulation is here, because one wonders if the village have done things to kind of keep maybe Janet away from this whole situation and only reveal elements of Number Six's disappearance to her at times that would help them as well. Yeah, and Number Six knows who Seltzman is and knows about his research, so he must at this point realise what it is that's happened to him. That, that his mind has been put into somebody else's body, albeit that he doesn't really remember the village. But he, he can't bring himself to 
throw this at Janet at, the, at this point in time to suddenly say, oh no, actually I am, I am your fiance. I just look different because my mind's been changed into a different body. Um, he, he doesn't want to, uh, to offload that at this point. So instead he says that he's a friend of number six, mm. but he's, he's very confused because he says that number six had told him that he saw Janet last night when she had the fitting for her dress for her birthday party made of yellow silk. And Janet says, no, that was a whole year ago. That was a year ago today. You must be confused because what you're saying isn't possible. And number six clearly thinks that this is a year ago. He doesn't understand how it can have been a whole year. Mm. So this is why we think that it's kind of odd because this does place uh, the timeline in kind of a an interesting place because... We have him being gone for exactly a year. It's the day before Janet's birthday. Uh, we know that he is about to disappear. And this, and in his mind, this is the day when he's going to resign. Although all of his behaviour suggests that he, um, he doesn't have that in his mind. Mm-hmm. But from this point in the episode onwards, now he knows that something is, is up. Mm. Um, I suppose he realises that this is a year. This is a year forward. But until this point, it's kind of interesting that they've They've chosen to set the story within this uh, this specific set of uh, uh, one year. Yeah, and he says to her, oh, you must have been aware of the sort of work that he did. And she says, oh, you know, yes, he was working for my father. So evidently Sir Charles mm. is her father. But, you know, it's skating on thin ice, isn't it, marrying the boss's daughter? <laughs> um, so uh, he says, well, you know, you, you must realise that it's possible for him to be away for a year or more and not be able to get in touch with you. But he promises to bring her a message from number six to her birthday party. Yeah. And there's a, I mean, this whole phrase, you know, what sort of work he did. Again, it's it's similar to the statement that number two makes about uh, the colonel earlier on, mm. where he says, you know, I suppose you wouldn't have come across him in the, you know, in the work that you're. Um, that you're doing it's these vague allusions to potentially him being a spy or being involved in some kind of sort of high level government post that would require a huge amount of secrecy and certainly working for sir charles who is at the beginning of the episode looking at you know looking at the slides and trying to crack the code that's in there this episode does give a feeling that he is a a spy maybe one who even does interact with uh, gathering intelligence about uh, sort of new scientific advances and things. But for whose side, we don't really know. Although in this case, it appears that he's working for the British government. And you you do wonder if McGoon had been around for most of the making of this episode, if he would have allowed so many kind of overt clues to be dropped (laughs) as to number six's former profession that you get in this episode. Especially because I think we see several times there's the, uh, the overuse of the John Drake... (laughs) <laughs> photo for his identification or for you know people who are looking for him throughout the episode and i think you know although it's a bit of a joke that it was used it's you know to have it uh displayed so frequently in an episode that strongly implies that six was a spy in his former life yeah you're right i don't think mcguin would have would have gone that far with it uh, maybe because it would have been a bit too on the nose and given too much backstory mm. um, and it's interesting because i think the prisoner Although it's about number two and the village trying to work out, you know, why he resigned, it's not a show that ever dwells on the past. Mm. It's never about his former life. It's about him living in the present and trying to look to the future. So it's odd that this episode spends so much time talking about 
his past. I mean, on one hand, it's it's information that you don't really need to know. On the other hand, you kind of think, well, you can watch the series and you kind of get hints at things and you and you have a feel in your own head about what Six would have been like in the real world. But it's fine just to have those feelings based on interpreting things that happen in you know in the present in the village you don't need to have it explained to you which is why this episode is a bit jarring filling in too much detail about a character in that number six devalues him as a character because you know it just takes away some of the mystery it's stuff you don't need to know it's stuff that's in your head without having it you know given to you in an episode which is largely exposition about his former life which is information which is never really called upon again in the series or has been called upon in the past there's a nice symmetry to this episode though because the last time number six was back in that house was in many happy returns and it was the day before his birthday and now he's back and it's the day before janet's birthday yeah yeah that's a good spot (laughs) so why they use this as a motif again i don't know but they do seem to like uh like the birthdays of people involved in the show (laughs) Yeah, so he promises to bring a message to Janet's party. Um, she leaves and he punches Mira in anger, uh, which is a, a, a slightly classic, almost cliche, you know, visual motif for a shattered psyche, I mm. suppose. It's awful. I don't know whether you're telling the truth or not. So Janet then goes to visit her father, who is Sir Charles, the character we saw in the opening of the episode. Um, We also see the same men who were there in that opening scene as well. Um, And I think he excuses them, doesn't he? Yeah. Uh, Whilst he speaks to his daughter, uh, she accuses him of knowing where number six is and uh, letting her go through hell by not telling her where six has been for the last year. Um, However, Sir Charles says that he has no knowledge of where he is he never sent him on a mission and also says something like um even by saying that he's giving away too much Mm -hmm. implying that the work that six was involved in was top secret now this this upsets janet i mean i think mainly because she must know that she can't tell if what he's saying is true or not but certainly there's this there's this cloud of confusion which is falling over her because i think even she knows there's something up with the man who claims to be a friend of number six Mm. in her house. And she must know enough about Six's line of work to know that something weird is going on. And it does actually also intrigue Sir Charles as well, I think, who asks for a little bit of information about this person. So this sets in motion a storyline in which now Janet is trying to work out where Six has been. She's trying to work out who this man is who claims to be a friend of number six and also sir charles now knows that number six has been off the grid for a very long time and somebody has now started um, assuming his identity in some way or living in his house Mm. and he wants to know exactly what's going on and it's something he wasn't aware of before which speaks to the fact that you know there is this idea that maybe he did disappear and no one knows where he's been and if he's come back or if somebody knows about him has he defected? Is something weird going on? In any case, wherever the village have taken him, it's unknown to Sir Charles. And so, and Sir Charles, I think, knows a lot about what's going on. What is your name? Code or real? Code in France, Duval. In Germany, Schmidt. You would know me best as ZM73. 
And your code number is PR12. Do you want more? Seltzman. Yeah, so then we get a scene that is effectively a mirror of the opening credits, uh, but instead of McGoohan marching down the corridor to uh, confront uh, George Markstein behind the desk to resign, it's the Colonel marching down the same corridor uh, and confronting a man named Danvers who is sitting at the same desk. It, but in many other respects, it is a, a replay of that opening scene where he, he marches in and grabs Danvers by the scuff of the neck and uh, demands to see Sir Charles. Yeah, and I like a really, well, it's a really small detail here, but when uh, Danvers is kind of lifted up, his arm knocks over uh, the cup of tea, which is on the table. Mm-hmm. And obviously in the opening credits, um, it's it's Magoon thumping the desk that causes the, the teacup to jump and it to spill. And even in this iteration, the tea still spills. Mm-hmm. But this time it's, uh, it's Danvers knocking it over, which I like. It's just a, you know, it's a nice mirror of that scene. It's a little subtle detail, but it's... It's one of those things which I like in the prison. They they did put these little subtle nods and winks to things in. And even even though there is no Magoon in this episode, to recreate that scene and have some elements of this permutation sort of remain remain the same, I think is nice. Hmm. Number six then has uh, a bit of a pointed conversation with Danvers, um, accuses him of still being as pompous as ever, and starts to reveal a lot of biographical information about Danvers in order to try and prove who he is uh, and this is the, f- the first of many occasions when he's going to attempt to prove to people that he is who he is by revealing information that only he could possibly know um, he says that he joined the civil service that he uh, grew up in Bootle <laughs> uh, which for those who don't know is um, near well it's part of Merseyside isn't it it's yeah. near Liverpool but it's not in Liverpool but there is a, a very large Inland Revenue office there. <laughs> <laughs> that Inland Revenue office would have been there in the 60s as well. Mm. So it could be a bit of a joke uh, that, yeah, the, the civil service is there, but it's the Inland Revenue. Um, and that he, uh, he was moved to this department that he's in now at the request of the typing pool, which is uh, very overtly marking him as a bit of a pest, really. Mm. Uh, who was uh, politely asked by women in the office to get rid of him. <laughs> and then the final story is when he threatens to reveal the details of a trip to Paris in 1958, mm. um, which immediately makes Danvers say, oh, okay, okay, I'll come. Yeah, that's enough, that's enough, don't need to say any more. So Six, clearly through this interaction, I mean, he must have worked for the civil service in some capacity. Again, it's a little detail, but would McGowan have allowed this to be so so overtly added? A new guy appears at the door just as Danvers is kind of uh, trying to uh, get things moving because he doesn't want any more details to be revealed. And this guy asks uh, the colonel for a code name. And number six, uh, inhabiting the colonel, asks if he uh, wants his real name or his code name. And the guy obviously says, I want your code name. And he says, well, in France, it's Duval. In Germany, it's Schmidt but you would know me as ZM73. And he then says that the guy he's talking to has the code name PR12. And what I like about this, again, it's a very subtle detail, but in many happy returns, number six gives a potentially fake name to Mrs. Butterworth as Peter Smith. Mm. Now, this could have actually been, I mean, in terms of being a fake name, it could have been a name he would have used as a sort of 
code name or just a you know a, you know a secret identity he could use if he didn't want to give his real identity away. And obviously, Schmidt is a German version for Smith, so <laughs> it's an interesting kind of callback to that. I mean, again, intentional or not, that suggests that the use of his name Peter Smith in Many Happy Returns uh, may have actually been. Um, linked to his use of Schmidt as his real code name uh, when he was in Germany. Yeah. And then uh, he says, you know, do, if you want some more, how, how about the word Seltzman? Hmm. And he pulls out the, uh, the classic John Drake photo. And uh, this is enough to pique this guy's interest, evidently, that uh, he's talking about Seltzman and flashing around a photograph of, of the real number six. So then six in the colonel's body, goes up in a paternoster lift with this other guy who we met earlier on in Danvers office. And uh, it's quite striking here. It's the first time we ever really see contemporary late 60s architecture. I mean, it's just an office block. It doesn't seem like anything as stylized as uh, as what we've seen in the village or the, um, the kind of offices that we see that belong to high-ranking members of the British government. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's the two basic styles that we see in the show quite a lot. So it's very weird to see him in late 60s London. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's a very mundane, slightly drab, functional building, basically. Mm. The, the, the kind of thing that you might expect to see for something like the Civil Service. And uh, it, in reality, the, they filmed it in uh, the GC Marconi building. It's where those funny lifts are. Mm. But my goodness, they give me the creeps. Whenever I see them going up in it, all I can think of is if you put your arm out, there's no door. And if you put your arm out, your arm's just going to get taken off. It's horrible. Oh, I can't bear it. It it, it, it just gives me the creeps. I don't, I don't know how else to explain it. Well, don't go in them then. <laughs> I wouldn't, you wouldn't catch me dead in one of those That's things. your birthday present, Screw, isn't it? <laughs> I was going to put patternals the lips in the house. Right. Um, so... Uh, Six, as the colonel, goes to see Sir Charles and tells him he's ZM73. And in order to try and convince uh, Sir Charles that he is actually number six, he tries to um, tell him some things that only number six would know. So I think he tells him a story of how uh, he asked Sir Charles uh, for Janet's hand in marriage while Sir Charles was pruning roses. And Sir Charles basically dismisses it and says, well, this is all stuff that you could have learnt from uh, number six under duress you could just rote learn it um, and this information could have been given up by number six willingly or uh, under hypnosis for example yeah he, he says you know, it could have been sedated you could use hypnosis he says we're all aware of you know the use of truth drugs and things <laughs> like that which is an unusual statement to make because of course those are exactly the kind of techniques that the village likes to use mm. if people don't willingly give information up so Clearly, people are aware of the use of these things. But the implication is that there's nothing that number six can say in the circumstances going to convince Sir Charles that he is who he claims to be. Despite the fact that Sir Charles knows about Seltzman and what Seltzman could do. Mm. Yeah, and uh, number six says, you know, I could never convince you then. And uh, so Charles's slightly sinister response is only enough to have you followed wherever you go, <laughs> uh, which is what he then proceeds to do as he puts um, a man t- on to tail number six throughout most of the rest of the episode. Yeah. So I I have a bit of a problem with him just letting him go like mm. this. And it's a problem that I can only find one narrative solution to. 
because he quite rightly points out that only number six could have known all these details, right? But that he could have got that. It, whoever it is that's standing in front of him at that point in time could have got that information from number six. If if you're Sir Charles, you would have spent the last year wondering where on earth one of your most important employees had apparently disappeared off to after resigning, who was not only very important to whatever work it was he was doing, but was engaged to your own daughter. Mm. He must have been thinking, what on earth has happened to this mm. guy? If you were suddenly then confronted with some you know, random dude standing in your office, giving you information that could only possibly have come from this missing agent or whatever he was, if you genuinely believed that there was absolutely no possibility that his mind has been swapped, you you wouldn't just let him go and tail him around because you would think, well, the only explanation is that this guy is working for whatever people it is who've got number six. Mm. So surely you're going to disappear into a black hole somewhere and fill him with sedatives and truth drugs to try and make him give up whatever he knows about the organisation he works for that have got number six. You wouldn't just let him waltz out of there <laughs> with a, a tail on him. You would, you would do something more. So to me, what this implies is that actually Sir Charles does think that there is at the very least the possibility that that is number six. Mm. Obviously, he knows about Suxman, he knows about the device. He knows that this must be theoretically possible to have done. He can't know if it is real or a trick. But if he and his you know, fellow civil servants or MI5 or 6 or whatever on earth they're supposed to be are looking for Seltzman, as we know they are from the, the cold open, and they know that the real number 6 had been in touch with Seltzman because they've got their mm. transparencies, I, I think that what he's thinking here is that there is at least a possibility that he is telling the truth that this is number six and we're going to send him back out into the world, tell him that we're putting a tail on him um, because it's going to be obvious anyway and if this is number six he's going to spot the tail a mile off and wait to see if he will lead us to Seltzman because if this really is number six he's going to want to find Seltzman. Mm to fix whatever's been done to him. Mm. So I think that Sir Charles doesn't necessarily believe him, but believes that it might be true mm. enough to let him walk out of there in the hope that he's going to lead them to Seltzman. Yeah, so he's he's feigning lack of belief in, in this guy in front of him as a bluff in order to find uh, Seltzman himself, which is what was uh, implied at the very beginning of the episode as his... Uh, his mission that he's trying to get him and his uh, his couple of friends to do. But the, the other problem this poses in terms of the continuity of what number six did in both the times of Big Ben when he thought he was in London and also many happy returns when he genuinely was in London for a while. Because in, in neither of those two cases did he attempt to get in touch with Sir Charles. Um, you know, when, when the other colonel was grilling him in Times of Big Ben... He never said, oh, get Sir Charles on the phone. He'll tell you that, you know, that I'm, I've been kidnapped and all that. And, and of course, he never tries to find Janet mm. either. Um, he never goes to uh, tell her what's happened to him. But again, I think there is an in-world logical explanation for all of this. And building up to my grand theory of this episode, right? 
I think he, he wouldn't have gone anywhere near Janet intentionally unless it was absolutely necessary because he would have seen in the village the fact that the village authorities are not averse to kidnapping family members yeah. of people in order to get information. You know, we saw in Hammer into Anvil the woman who uh, appears to kill herself in the opening scene. It's her husband, isn't it, who's been, yeah, yeah, who's been captured? Yeah. They're trying to get information from, yeah. from her. So he might have stayed well away from Janet in order to effectively keep the village authorities from going anywhere near her. He, he wouldn't have wanted to risk her being taken mm. because he had told her anything about the village and what was going on. And I think the reason why he didn't go anywhere near Sir Charles so it goes back to my mm. idea that the, the final straw, the thing that caused him to resign, was, was something that he learned at that lunch yeah. with Sir Charles, that he now hasn't learned it because he's yeah. forgotten everything from the last year. Whatever it was that made him lose all trust in Sir Charles to the point where he never went to him for help when he was back in London before and instead went to other people that he had worked with, he has now forgotten about. Because whatever it was that, that triggered that resignation has been erased from his mind. I think there's a nice irony that goes along with that, that whereas uh, the village are directing number two to execute a plan to use number six to find Seltzman, mm. what they're actually failing to do is find out the actual reason why he resigned. Yeah. Because by sending him out at this time, you potentially have a chance to you know, learn exactly what he knew in the time leading up to his resignation. But instead, they kind of kind of fail to see that because the most important thing to them, and indeed for Sir Charles, is to find Zeltzman. So, yeah, in the other episodes, when he's come back home, seemingly, um, like in many happy returns, it's notable that he has uh, returned with the full knowledge of having been in the village. Hmm. And in this case, he hasn't. And that actually changes the nature of all of his interactions he's doing all the things that he wouldn't usually do because in his mind they haven't happened yet mm. or rather he he hasn't experienced them because he's returned a year later mm. and it's it's not the it's not the same set of circumstances that led up to him resigning so yeah it's a really nice idea because it could potentially be a an easter egg which actually unlocks a lot of the uh, a lot of the prisoner in some respects because there's a whole alternate series of events that have happened but curiously number 6 is not aware of mm. um and they are the actual events that the village is trying to find out and they've actually missed a trick by not somehow utilizing the situation to their advantage to learn the bigger mystery at least to them of why 6 resigned which potentially also is linked to why he's so important again. So all these different things, it just seems like everyone is in this mad rush to find Zeltzman. They're failing to uh, see the bigger picture here for the first time. Yeah. Ironically, they may have erased the very information that they've been spent the last year trying to get out of him. Mm. When I arrived, they were playing a waltz. The first I danced with my love. My dear love in Kidsbury. How do you know us? Where is he? So 
Six is now uh, wandering to himself, you know, where Seltzman is and indeed whether Seltzman perfected the reversion process that would allow his mind to be returned back into his own body. Um, he drives around London. Uh, he's followed by a hearse, something we haven't seen uh, since the episode uh, arrival. And it's clear that this is not the person who Sir Charles has sent to tail him, but actually a member of the village. So the village has now got somebody tailing him. Sir Charles has somebody tailing him. And everyone is trying to find if number six in the colonel's body is able to lead them to uh, find Seltzman. Yeah, and number six doesn't seem to have any negative reaction to the presence of the hearse or the guy in the top hat who's hanging around. Because but he's never experienced he this. Yeah. Exactly, he yeah. doesn't remember any of it. Yeah, and at home, uh, there's a fun little scene where he finds that his uh, handwriting is still the same. Even though he's in the colonel's body, it's still uh, the same, presumably through some kind of muscle memory that allows him to have the same handwriting that he had when he was uh, number six. And uh, he goes behind um, the TV, which is clearly a fake television, <laughs> uh, and behind it is a safe, um, which he uses to get some money from. And what I like here is that the television is used so frequently in The Prisoner as you know a means of communication between the village and number six. Um, it's kind of where you know, various number twos have Skyped him, basically. <laughs> and uh, it's interesting that in The Village he sees it as a television mm. and he treats it as a television. Whereas in his real life, which obviously the village have replicated the you know the layout of his own house and, and all the furniture, etc. Um, it's not a real television. It's actually one that conceals the safe behind it. And uh, he, he takes another look at Janet's photo in the frame. And then that's our cue to uh, merge into Janet's birthday party. Or should I say Madame Ongadine's party? <laughs> Because it's it's the same set and I think even bits of it are the same footage. Yeah, they could be actually. Yeah, there certainly seems to be some of the same music playing. Um, but it, it's that set that was Madame Ongadine's party and also the courtyard where the professor and Madame Professor were teaching in the general. Yeah, so a bit of ABC, a bit of the general. Yeah. Uh, so everyone's having a good time. It's a pretty massive birthday party. Yeah. Everyone's dressed up to the nines. But I guess, you know, if your dad is some... Uber civil servant, so what's his face? Then maybe also that's... Charles. They're very clear on that. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's what you do for your birthday. We've said it repeatedly. His name is Sir Charles. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, number six turns up with uh, his invitation that he found. That's actually a year out of date, but mm. he turns up anyway. Uh, we see a, a very brief scene of uh, Sir Charles checking with his lackeys that Six is definitely being followed. And uh, Six arrives at the party and uh, takes a glass of champagne. Which is handed to him by the village guy who was driving the hearse earlier. Yeah, who is now appearing as a waiter <laughs> in the party. And he has one of the costume changed later in the episode as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Janet spots that he's turned up. And uh, comes over rather angrily and says, you know, I, I, I didn't invite you. Um, he reveals that he's he, he's got the invitation from last year. And uh, demands to know if he works for her father. And he says, no, but your father knows that I'm here. So yeah. clearly he knows that he's being followed. And at this point, he chooses to reveal to Janet that he really is number six in somebody else's body. 
um, which is, is clearly a circumstance that's effectively forced on him by the fact that, as we find out later, he needs to get the negatives from well, no, the receipt from her. Yeah. It's going to lead him to the negatives. Yeah. Um, so he he tries to um, explain to her that uh, he is number six and he tries to prove it by talking about the first dance they had together, which was in uh, Kitzbühel. Yeah, in Austria. Yeah. yeah. And she's clearly a bit shaken by this because um, who else would know such a thing when he recalls some of the details of the dance. And he asks her for a slip of paper that he left with her uh, just before he disappeared a year ago and tells her that uh, he'll go and wait in the arbour for her. And as he leaves, you see another um, guy approach Janet and ask if she would like to dance. And it was this moment when uh, she gets asked to dance by somebody else that made me start thinking about Odysseus and Penelope. Mm -hmm. Um, I I know we've often kind of gone off into tangents about um, classical mythology and, and references in The Prisoner. But I I really like this one where it, essentially you, you could view number six's um, attempts to get home and him being lost in a, a place that appears to be, you know, island-like as kind of an odyssey hmm. when, you know, he, he's repeatedly trying to uh, to make his way home. There are much greater forces who keep trying to prevent him. Uh, every, every week he's up against different foes and different difficulties and trying to uh, to get back to his former life. And as we now find out, he's got a fiance who uh, doesn't know where he is, doesn't know if he's alive or dead, who is waiting for him, which is exactly the same with Penelope. She didn't <laughs> know if Odysseus was alive or dead. And she had all these suitors who were camped out in her house hoping to uh, to win her hand um, on the assumption that Odysseus was dead, that she kept trying to put off. And it was that moment where the other guy asked her to dance because to, to the outside world, her fiancé has been missing here. Mm. No one knows where he is. You know, she she's obviously a very eligible bachelorette. So <laughs> so maybe a lot of people are thinking, oh, actually, maybe, you know, maybe that engagement's not going to last. Maybe she's going to start looking for someone else. <laughs> um, and of course, in the Odyssey... When Odysseus finally makes it back home, he's in disguise and Penelope does not recognise mm. him. You know, albeit it was a deliberate disguise because he knows he's got lots of enemies back there. Uh, but he, he goes to his house and um, yeah, but number six doesn't skewer any of the uh, the suitors who are trying to dance with her on this point. But um, but the, the way that Penelope finally accepts that it is Odysseus when he tries to explain who he is is by Odysseus revealing a piece of information that only he could possibly mm. know, which in that case is the fact that um, their bed can't be moved from one room to another because one of the legs of the bed is actually a living olive tree, and so therefore the, the bed can't be moved. And in this case, you've got you know the, the Odysseus-esque hero returning home in a completely different body who no one recognises, but convincing Janet... Um, the Penelope figure, that he is who he says he is because he knows this very private personal information that no one else could possibly know, at which point she begins to recognise him and, and and starts to think that this might be true. Um, so, yeah, I, I I like the idea that this is a kind of mini Odyssey story. Mm-hmm. And it's a theme which, like you say, fits with, with what the show was about from one perspective. Mm. 
Yeah. So he goes outside and waits in the arbor, and uh, you hear the internal monologue again, wondering, you know, is, is she going to come? Will she still have the receipt? And when she brings the receipt out to him and asks for the message from number six, he strokes her face and they kiss. And, uh, you know, he says, who else could have given you this message? And he says, nobody but you. Yeah, and this is a quite an interesting moment in terms of the what if that takes place after the episode. Because although um, up until this point, it's been clear that Janet knows that there is something interesting about this man who claims to have knowledge of number six and intimate details about his life. Uh, this is a moment where it's crystallised that she believes that clearly knowing a little bit about the mysterious nature of what working for her father might entail, this is actually number six trapped inside uh, somebody else's body. So it's it's strange because we realise that, you know, what happens after all this? Does she... Does she always remember the fact that these events happen when mm. you know when Six returns to the village? Same with a lot of elements here. I mean, he's he has a he does a lot of things outside of the village in this episode that would affect those around him. Most notably, now things that would probably traumatize for a second time his previously unmentioned uh, fiance, <laughs> who you know lost him for a year and has him back again and is about to lose him again as well. Mm. So Six then goes to a camera shop in London. Some nice little details here. There's a, a brief appearance by uh, Bob Monkhouse. Um, <laughs> he's advertising Polaroid cameras or, or something on you know on the door. There's uh, weird signs all over this place. Again, uh, ones that we were you know I think we said them, um, earlier on. There are elements that kind of date the episode a little bit, and it has you know posters for things like you know views of old London. There are these black and white photos. Interestingly, if you look around, there are kind of black rectangles all over some of these posters and signs. And I think these are all uh, redacted because they basically are there to um, hide the names of manufacturers, etc. In order to, um, uh, well, I suppose, prevent free advertising for them in an episode of The Prisoner as well. Whereas now, what you would do, you you would either get paid for putting the advert in the show or you would get your props department to make up a completely invented camera manufacturer and and design posters and put them all over the walls and spend a fortune doing it yeah and it's interesting that they you know this is in one respect a a desire not to have any product placement uh, in the scene and i like the fact that the equivalent just sort of the general store in the village has these unbranded things in (laughs) there anyway which is you know which is what's actually used as a as uh, you know, as the labels for you know food and maps and all kinds of things as well. Mm. Also, though all the signs are are redacted on the outside, when you go inside, there's a shot of uh, six entering the camera shop, and you can see behind that uh, the props department must have just folded over the top of the uh, Bob Monkhouse poster, <laughs> uh, which then says, uh, I think, uh, the Polaroid Swinger or something. <laughs> so it's clear that although they thought they could hide that sign by folding it backwards so you couldn't see it from the outside, when uh, when Six goes inside, you can actually see what the uh, that poster was advertising anyway. <laughs> so uh, they did their best, uh, but it wasn't good enough. <laughs> but the, the interior of the shop looks like a redone version of the village shop itself. Yeah, it feels like that. Yeah. yeah. Which is kind of odd because in Arrival, it's one of the many echoes of Arrival where he goes in looking for a map. Hmm. And in this case, he's going in looking for these transparencies that will hmm. 
ultimately come together to form a trail that's going to take him yeah, to find yeah, someone. Yeah. Um, yeah, so he's got this receipt from Janet um, and he says, you know, I've, I've got a receipt from over a year ago. Do you still have the developed pictures? Mm. And they say, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll still have it. And the uh, the shopkeeper, he, he goes off to find it. And number six noticed that there's someone hanging around in the door watching him. And this is the village guy. This is the the guy who was in the hearse, was the waiter, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Um, who then properly kind of shuffles off when he realises that number six has seen him. And the shopkeeper comes back and says, I'm very sorry, we do have your pictures, but I need to tell you that one of our juniors accidentally gave your transparencies to someone by mistake, but they brought them back. And number six is clearly very suspicious about this, because although he's got the pictures, it means that someone else has got at them and has probably taken copies. And this is presumably how Sir Charles and his team... Mm got the pictures they were looking at in the cold open, this Carmichael person mm. who gets mentioned is presumably a pseudonym of someone working for Sir Charles. They they got the the transparencies because they knew that number six had been in touch with Seltzman and they've taken copies and it was those copies they were looking at in the, the cold open. So, I mean, this is basic spycraft, isn't it? You, mm. know, hi, you know, there's there's something about these transparencies and the fact that Sir Charles knows about this means that he is aware exactly of, of what's going on. What I did wonder was whether the opening scene actually takes place a year ago. <laughs> it could um, do. It could because do. if they knew that Six's last mission or, or whatever aspect of his job was to meet with Seltzman and he hasn't shown up again, one wonders if actually the first thing they would have done would have been to investigate you know, what Six has been doing. And they would have got the pictures then. And there's no indication, actually, that, you know, when when they're showing that opening credit scene, that is actually in the past. That happened immediately afterwards, and they felt that they could get a clue to Seltzman then. I mean, maybe there were more... Well, that's actually what's quite sinister about this. If they saw this information a year ago, what were they worried about? They were not worried about where number six was. Mm. They were worried about Seltzman. Mm. And this goes back to what you were saying earlier. Maybe... There's something to do with Six's relationship with Sir Charles that implies that maybe Six, in some very extreme way, found out that Sir Charles thought he was dispensable for whatever, you know. Maybe that's why he uh, he dropped the secateurs when he was cutting his roses when uh, he asked <laughs> to marry his daughter because in the back of his mind he was thinking, but I'm probably going to get rid of you at some point. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing. I think if, you know, if Sir Charles is somebody who's, you know, if his as an example, if you know if number six is one of his key agents and he's been sent to to um, interact with Seltzman and get information from him, if the only thing that uh, Sir Charles is worried about is where Seltzman is, and he shows no indication back then that he cared about where six was, you know maybe maybe this is an aspect of of why six felt he couldn't work for these people anymore because actually they weren't they were doing things where the mission was more important than the people and maybe the missions weren't necessarily on the right side as mm. it was. There's, there's something strange about this and the fact that Six is so suspicious is very, very odd. Certainly, I mean, if it all happened a year ago, that would explain why they had them then, maybe they took copies and then they all get returned by this mysterious Carmichael. But I like the fact that the conversation he has with the proprietor of the camera shop, it's, you know, it's very weird that you know, the shop owner seems to talk back to him in a way that implies that he 
and number six are on the same wavelength. They're t- you know they're they're talking about uh, the event of the the transparencies being handed over as something that was suspicious, mm. and they talk about it you know in order to well it's kind of alluding to the fact that it shouldn't have happened but it did happen. Uh, I mean my you know what I'd like to think of the backstory of this guy is that he is the the guy who develops these kinds of photos for you know for number six. He knows exactly why these photos are important and why they're being requested and actually now what he's doing is he's trying to hint to him that actually that information may have been intercepted by somebody else and the fact that he's saying that also implies that maybe six trusted people like him more than six trusted for example the people who work for sir charles Mm. you know i mean they must have had their own people who could develop photos so why would you you know leave this stuff in a random camera shop you know, surely that's more susceptible to being tracked down by, you know, somebody else than to have it developed on your own. So maybe he didn't trust the people he worked for, which again, it, you know, there is a lot you could read into what may have been the backstory to uh, to Six and indeed his resignation before this episode takes place. Yeah. So he gets his transparencies. He asks for a photo to be taken um, of him for a passport, because evidently he's planning on going overseas, but his picture's not right for the passport he's got. Because it's John Drake's photo. <laughs> it probably is John Drake's photo. Um, and then outside the camera shop, you see that he's also being watched by Sir Charles's lackey, who is a different guy from the village guy who was hanging around in the doorway. So both sets of people are still trailing him everywhere that he goes. And that's followed by lots more filler footage of... Um, various different people driving around in that car in London. Yeah, some of whom are actually Patrick McGowan. <laughs> you know, clearly outtakes from those opening uh, sequence bits where he's driving around and being used again. Yeah. Uh, but we'll forgive that. Yeah. So back at number six's house, there's this lovely shot of the exterior of it where you see a bright red post box on the corner. And I like to think that that's where Danger Mouse lives. <laughs> <laughs> He's not Danger Man, he's Danger Mouse. No. <laughs> Is he? Yeah. But he does live underneath their pillow, yeah, yeah, doesn't yeah. he? Anyway, in my mind, that's where he lives. Uh, but he, he's still being followed by Sir Charles's guy. He goes inside, draws the curtains, opens up a projector, and uh, he then starts to piece together the transparencies in the code that Sir Charles's team had been unable to crack back in that opening scene. He writes Seltzman's name out in a grid of four by two. Yeah. And then he, he writes the alphanumeric number for every other letter. So the E, the T, the M, the N as 520, 13, 14 yeah. letters of the alphabet. And that is a key to take slides number 520, 13 and 14. And he puts them in the projector all together in that order and then clips special lenses on his glasses. Which are things that... They weren't using in the opening scene. Yeah. 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 And uh, all of these funny pictures, some of which are overexposed, underexposed and so on. When you put them together in that order and look at them through the lens, you see the words Kandersfeld, Austria appear on the screen. So this is the message that Salzman must have put into the pictures that he sent to number six over a year ago to give number six a way of finding him one day. Yeah. And then uh, Six then looks this place up uh, in a map. Which apparently doesn't really exist. 
There isn't really a, a cancer spell. I don't know why they made it up. Um, they could have just used a town that was really in Austria. I don't know. <laughs> There's something very prisoner-esque about making it up, though. Mm. Uh, yeah. So then uh, number six is off to Austria and uh, via the A20 to Dover. Yeah. He's still being followed. <laughs> uh, he gets on the Maid of Kent. Yep. which is presumably heading over to Calais. Yeah, and with some wonderful sort of music accompaniment, he drives through France, <laughs> Germany and Austria. Yes, it's like somebody just looked up stereotypical French music <laughs> and played it over the background. You know what? It gets the job done. <laughs> it's like, and now here we are in France, 10 seconds, and now here we are in Germany. Let's have some umpa music in the background. Um, together with some, well alternating between stock footage they've brought in from somewhere and really dodgy back projection mm. of Nigel stock in a car kind of doing the the, the kind of driving that, that kids do on, on um, those moving cars you get outside shopping centres mm. where you sit in the car and you move your hands. <laughs> and somebody's blowing a fan at him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, that's how you get to Austria. You see, Professor Salzman, your invention works. Only too well. I am a simple village barber. Don't play tricks on an old man, I beg of you. Believe me, Herr Professor, you're the last person in the world I would choose. But somebody's played a wretched trick on me. Do you recognise that face? Of course. He was he was a friend. So, in a parallel with uh, Sixer's former life, seemingly, uh, in the village, uh, he stops at a cafe where the waiter um, emerges and says, Welcome to the village, sir. What would you like to order? Yes. A nice little mention of the village, even though this is obviously a different village. This is a Kandersfeld or whatever. Yeah. And of course, in, in Arrival, the first place he goes to speak to somebody is a cafe. Yeah. So it's it's interesting that they do use these uh, use these scenes to mirror what's happened already in, um, in The Prisoner, and notably in Arrival as well. Throughout the whole thing, we see that um, there's a tracking device, which for some reason, as a spy, potentially, Six seems to be unaware of or hasn't thought this may have been something that uh, Sir Charles's people could have done to him. Mm. Um, but he's clearly being tracked. And this is by uh, Sir Charles's man who's followed him to Austria mm. to see if he can also track down Seltzman, who Six is going to see. And uh, Six then shows uh, the waiter a photo of uh, Seltzman and says, you know, do you know this guy? And he is directed to the local barber shop where it appears that uh, Seltzman may be working undercover. So he heads to the barber shop and uh, greets the man there, who is clearly Seltzman, but going by the name of Herr Helen. Herr Helen, yeah. Yeah. Um, Which is his pseudonym there. And number six reveals pretty much straight away that he (laughs) is number six. He he takes out the John Drake photo and flashes (laughs) it around and says, you know, your invention works. And Seltzman tries to keep up the the pretense of his pseudonym. He says, you know, I'm just a simple village barber who returned to the place of his birth. You mm. shouldn't torment an old man. Um, anyone with that photo could claim to be the person that you're saying you are. You know what? In the original village, they have all these things like a watchmaker shop, but they don't have a barber shop. <laughs> no, they don't. They don't. Which would be pretty much the, one of the few things that people would need all the time. <laughs> So, so number six is in the same position with Seltzman that he was in with Sir Charles, which is how to prove who he is. And he says, well, would you accept that uh, everyone's handwriting is unique 
and that if I have number six's handwriting, then that must be who I am. And uh, he asks Salzman if he still has the letter that he sent to him when he was in Scotland. Hmm. And Salzman says, well, you know, if if what you're saying is true and you are who you say you are and I am who you say I am, I would have to be really stupid to have kept that letter. Uh, but lucky for you, uh, sentimental people sometimes are very stupid <laughs> and he has kept it, which is really telling here because if it's that sentimental to him, it implies that they had actually become quite close, quite good friends. Yeah, up until now, we've considered Six as being somebody who's been sent on a mission to kind of track down the Seltzman guy, mm. maybe steal intelligence from him. But it's, I mean, that might have been the motivation for their initial meeting, but it's clear that they struck up a bond of some kind. And Seltzman does look upon number six very fondly. Mm. So, uh, so Seltzman, who's uh, played by Hugo Schuster. Yeah goes off to fetch the letter that will have number six's handwriting on the front. And when you see a close-up of it, uh, you can see that it was addressed to uh, number 20 Port Marion Road. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it's postmarked 1961. Hmm. Um, Yeah. Greenford Middlesex, 2pm, 10th of March 1961 is the postmark. Yes, they include this bit because, although now we know that the the village uh, scenes were shot in Port Marion, they did keep that a secret. In the credits, for example, they didn't really talk about it um, during the airing of the series. And it's only ever revealed, it's not a spoiler, but it's only ever revealed mm-hmm. that uh, the show was shot on location in Port Marion where necessary um, in the final episode. Mm-hmm. But it's nice they put a little Easter egg in there for people, you know, hinting that uh, Port Marion may have something to do with what's going on. Mm-hmm. And uh, when number six demonstrates his handwriting and proves that it's really him, mm-hmm. uh Seltzman says, my, my poor young friend, they wanted you to lead them to me. Mm. Do you think that it's your people who did this to you? Mm. I.e. Sir Charles. Yeah. yeah. And um, Six says that he's certain that it isn't. Mm. And Seltzman says, well, then it must be your enemies mm. um, who have your body. Mm. So evidently he's aware that there are multiple sides or multiple forces at work who are all trying to find Seltzman and all might potentially have abused number six in order to lead them to uh, mm. to Salzman. So clearly he's he's gone into hiding in order to try and hide from all of these forces, which you then have to ask, why would you go back to the place where you were born? Because isn't that one of the places where people might look for you? <laughs> <laughs> but leaving that aside, um, we, we then see that Sir Charles's man, who's got the, the tracker, on number six, presumably on his car or mm. something, is closing in on the village. Seltzman explains that both sides mm. uh, want the reversal process. Because number six asks him if the reversal process does actually work or if it's been if it's been um, perfected. And Seltzman says, well, you know, it's it's theoretical and untested and it's dangerous, but evidently it does exist, yeah. at least in theory. Yeah, the, the, the first visitor they get is uh, Potter. Um, number six sees him coming from out the window, which is kind of an odd name to use because it's the name of a character in Danger Man. Yes, yeah, yeah. And indeed, the name gets used again for a different character in, a, in the next episode, but, but one after we're going to be yeah. talking about. Yeah, but he, he sees him coming and he says, we, we've got to hide. We can't get taken by this guy. He knows that this guy works for Sir Charles. Mm. And uh, 
Saltzman leads me down into a basement where there's clearly some kind of secret lab uh, that's going on down there that Saltzman has been continuing his experiments. So Potter actually then follows them into the basement and he gets into the uh, standard issue ITC fisticuffs with uh, number six <laughs> slash the colonel, um, which involves one of the funications where they actually use a prop because uh, he takes a chair and smashes it over him. <laughs> um, you know, kind of... Uh, Makes things a little bit different. Uh, the fight goes on a little bit. Um, but then at the top of the stairs, we see the appearance of another character. And this is a man who appears to be dressed like almost like a chauffeur, like a green, bit in a green suit or something. Yeah. And we realise it's the operative who has been following number six, who was sent from the village. We saw him earlier on as the waiter at Janet's birthday party and also in the top hat driving the hearse as well. And he has like a little portable, it looks like almost like a hairdryer or something, um, <laughs> but it's like a little gas dispenser, which mm. seems to emit a lot of the knockout gas uh, into the room that was, well, it must be very similar to the stuff that was used, you know, through the keyhole in Six's apartment at the beginning of the episode arrival as a means to knock him out. I mean, it's the same kind of imagery. It's the same kind of thing again. Curiously, the man from the village uh, isn't wearing a gas mask or anything. Yeah. Which I think is kind of odd because if it's gassing everyone, you kind of wonder whether this guy is immune to it in some way. I mean, I know it's blowing in one direction, but the gas will fill the room. And it's kind of strange that this guy is using it without anything that would prevent him inhaling it himself. But clearly he isn't knocked out either. Yeah, I, I like to think that they've conducted some weird experiments yeah. on their on their their gas goons who they can send out to gas people who are themselves immune to the gas in some way. Rather thought for example. How he must regret having split the atom. Yes. Almost as bad as splitting the identity of two human beings. So once again, in a parallel to Arrival, Six, this time in the body of the Colonel, has been knocked out by um, a village goon who has now um, brought them back to the village. So we see all these aerial shots of the village as uh, they're brought back to the site. It's kind of interesting because we have no idea what happens, as we were saying earlier, to the Janet subplot. I mean, she left without number six for the second time in a year. Uh, we also never see Potter again either. I think it's it's implied that the village only bring back uh, number six as the colonel and Seltzman. So it's unclear if they've left Potter there or if they've killed him or, or dispensed him in some way. Certainly if Potter is still alive or at least you know some of the information has got back to Sir Charles, one would wonder whether... Sir Charles is aware of what's happened, you know, because all of a sudden this guy who was very interested in who may have been there to lead him to Seltzman has now disappeared along with Seltzman as well. Mm. But Seltzman himself has been taken back to the village and is being treated quite well initially. Mm. Um, in fact, the way that he's welcomed into uh, number two's place in the Green Dome is quite similar to the Colonel where they offer him breakfast mm. when he comes in and, and he says no, just like the Colonel did. No one seems to want breakfast there. <laughs> and uh, he's immediately resistant to any of Number Two's overtures in, in wanting to get this technology from him. You know, n num Number Two is, is effectively saying, you know, you know, you shouldn't be so resistant. Mm. And he says, 
well, you know, the, I'm sure a lot of scientists regret what they've done. Rutherford must regret splitting the atom, mm. which again dates it quite a lot because this is made in the Cold War at the height of you know, people's fears about nuclear warfare. And number two says, well, that was almost as bad as splitting somebody's mind from their body. Mm. He says, unlike all the king's horses and all the king's men, only you can put them back together <laughs> again. Which is a nice uh, nursery rhyme reference. We haven't mm. had many nursery rhyme motifs lately um but it's nice having a little humpty dumpty motif in there yeah and there's a nice moment when six inhabiting the colonel's body and seltzman uh look to the giant screen as number two shows that six's body in the village is strapped into the seltzman machine Mm. and they both look startled but i suppose this is a moment when six realizes where his body is he now knows uh, where he is and he's in the village but even Seltzman shows some concern for Six as well which goes back to the idea that they had become friends in some way and clearly Seltzman doesn't like his technology being subverted for use by an organisation like the village. Yeah because at one point number two says to, to Seltzman well you invented the wretched process <laughs> and Seltzman says no it's men like you who made it wretched mm through the way that they're using it. There's nothing inherently evil about that technology existing any more than there is inherently evil about being able to split an atom. It's mm. just the way that you use it, that technology afterwards. So, uh, yeah, so number two a- appears to win Seltzman over by saying to him, look, you owe it to number six to put him back in his own body. Mm. And Seltzman says, okay, I will do it. But I will only do it on certain conditions for once I am going to dictate what's Hmm. happening here. And number two, slightly sarcastically, says Heil, Hmm. which you could read some of this as, you know, you've got a a Germanic scientist, albeit someone from Austria, Hmm. but a, a Germanic scientist who has invented some technology that the powers on one side or the other, or maybe neither side, wants to get their hands on. And it it, it has echoes of something like Operation Paperclip, where um, German scientists who had worked for the Nazi regime were given sanctuary in the United States in return for continuing to work on... Mm on their scientific research and and give the benefits of that research to the US. The good doctor's mind now inhabits a body perhaps not to his liking. The colonel's. Dr. Sussman had progressed more than any of us had anticipated. He can and did change three minds at the same time. So Seltzman agrees to do this. I mean, largely he's being manipulated into it by uh, being told that this is for Six's benefit. But he clearly has something up his sleeve um, because he says, I will do it alone. I mm. need 12 hours. So he he's agreeing now to uh, work on the reversal process. But clearly he's he's not stupid. He's not. He knows whose hands the Seltzman machine is actually in. So it wouldn't be unexpected if he did something to uh, subvert the ability of the village to carry on using it. So now we're in a room with the Seltzman machine. Now two is watching uh, the process being set up and says, you know, all cameras turn, make a note of all he does. So 
he's allowing Seltzman to perform the reversal. Um, he's not there in the room with him at the time, but he kind of knows that, well, he's clearly respecting Seltzman enough to let him do it. And it's odd that he doesn't do more to kind of find out exactly what's actually happening. Um, I think the most the most telling problem about this whole thing is there's no reason why Seltzman needs to be sitting between <laughs> number six and the colonel with like wires connected up to him as well. I mean, that would be a flag that something weird is going to happen. Um, but number two doesn't actually you know, see it as an issue. Uh, he just wants this procedure uh, performed. Yeah, so Seltzman begins the process and all the lights start to flash and the beats get higher and faster and everything crackles. And uh, number two is, is still watching and recording everything that's going on, thinking that he's going to get the secret to the reversal process. And then right at the last moment, Seltzman pulls out one of the cables on this, this box that he's holding in his hands, which on it is written that it's an EKG monitor or yeah, something like yeah. that. Um, but he, he pulls it out and then collapses. And uh, you hear number two's voice across all the tenors, emergency, emergency, mm. as they rush to find out what's going on. Yeah. Uh, so things suddenly move uh, very quickly to kind of wrap up uh, the episode. The procedure appears to be over. The colonel is dressed and ready to return home, wherever that home actually is. And he's going to be sent back by helicopter just as he arrived at the start of the episode. And number two tells him that uh, he'll be suitably rewarded. Mm. So clearly, in number two's eyes, the mission has succeeded. Um, Seltzman has been found and the reversal process and indeed Seltzman are now in the hands of the village. So we then, I think, cut to a helicopter shot, don't we? To show uh, the colonel seemingly taking off and uh, leaving the village. Yeah, he seemed to get there very quickly. He, you know, he says to him, "Oh, your helicopter's waiting," and and he, and he he goes off. And very soon afterwards, what appears to be Seltzman yeah. um, regains consciousness, uh, and and says, "You assured me he was in good health. Tell number one that I uh, I did my duty. Tell him I did my duty." Yeah, and interestingly, not only does he reference number one, but also he references number one as being a him. So I think in all the series so far, although we've had scenes where uh, number two has spoken to somebody and referred to them as sir or even him, they've never made reference to the person they're talking to being number one. Although it's kind of implied that it's somebody more important than them, or it could just be another level of, of village hierarchy which is getting in the way. So this is the first time that there's an implication that number one is actually uh, a man. And then the person who appears to be Seltzman promptly loses consciousness again and mm. dies. And number six regains consciousness at that exact moment, apparently having had his complete memory returned to him by the mm. procedure, and has a chat with number two, say, basically saying it's too late. Seltzman's mind is now in the colonel's body. It might not be the body he would choose, but uh, he's now gone and free to continue his research in peace. Yeah, so uh, Seltzman has left in the colonel's body. Number six is back in his own body. And the colonel's mind was transferred into Seltzman and Seltzman is now dead. Yeah, because as number six explains, Seltzman had continued his research yeah. while he was on his own and it had progressed beyond anything that any of them had expected. So he could actually swap three minds around at once. 
rather than just the two they were thinking they were going to get switched over. But given that the colonels literally only just left the room, you would think they could have stopped the helicopter. Yeah, I think we saw in the schizoid man when uh, Anton Rogers number two lets the helicopter take off and come back. Um, it's a bit of a weird ending that they allow that to happen. But yes, apparently, uh, you know, there was no way to call the helicopter back or do anything about it. And uh, Seltzman has escaped in the body of the colonel, seemingly out of the grasp of uh, the village. And they can't get him back. Apparently, you know, <laughs> it's kind of odd. They must have chartered somebody who doesn't work for the village to uh, send a helicopter back. I don't know how that works. But uh, but clearly, um, Seltzman is now free. And number six kind of has a bit of a smirk as he reveals that they've got one over on the village. And there's this nice comment again from the Fallout Guide about the idea that the presence of the character who is from the village who has the hearse and wears the, the top hat that you see in this episode and also in the opening credits of every episode, gassing number six, as almost being a, a you know a, a, an undertaker metaphor for the idea of death catching up with the characters. Um, and if you, if you view the idea of the village as being a, a metaphor for some kind of death, the way that they, they clearly did in Dance of the Dead, that it could be you know, the ultimate destination, this is inescapable place. And in, and I like this because what we've got here is Seltzman literally escaping death by finding himself a new body and leaving. Mm. He leaves the village a new man and able to, to live out a whole other life. I mean, number six says, oh, you know, it might not be the body he would want, but it's a body that's several decades younger than the body mm. he was in. So... Come on, beggars can't be choosers. He's going to get a, a very long life out of this, isn't he? The device with which Seltzman finally succeeded in switching the minds of two people. So that was our recap and discussion all about the episode Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling. An episode which arguably could have also been called A Change of Mind. Yes. <laughs> or The Schizoid Man. Yes. And indeed a title which probably is more fitting for the next episode, uh, Living in Harmony. Yes. Um, <laughs> let's begin about that. Um, yeah, we'd like to thank you for listening to our uh, extended discussion about that. The next thing we're going to do is go to something we discussed at the beginning of the episode, which is a question we put out to all of our Twitter followers, which was about the new number two that appears in The Prisoner. So um, a couple of weeks back, uh, we posed a question to everyone who listens to the podcast on our Twitter account at TFCAA. And we said, who past or present would you like to have seen playing the new number two opposite Patrick McGowan in The Prisoner? So this could be open to any actor, past or present, but they would be, you know, spinning around in that number two chair um, to face off against um, number six. And the interesting thing about this is, although McGowan really is irre really is irreplaceable as number six, it's interesting that uh, the number twos often bring their own kind of unique characteristics to the role. 
And we thought it'd be really fun to find out who people thought, you know, would have made a good number two if they'd been given a chance. Yep. So we're going to go through some of our favourite suggestions that people made. It is predominantly older actors, but there are some some current younger actors in there as well, which are kind of interesting suggestions. Yeah, we'd like to thank everyone who um, wrote in suggestions. I think we had, well, an absolute ton of responses. Should we go through all of them, some of them? Yeah, let's go through all of them. We'll go through all of them. Um, this would be a very uh, boring section of the podcast if you're not interested in just hearing a list of names. Yeah, but, um, you know, this episode hasn't been long enough yet. <laughs> <laughs> right, so we have Peter Jeffrey, Oliver Reed, Aidan Turner, Patrick Stewart. Oh, that would have been good. Ooh, yeah. Ian McKellen, who obviously was number two in the... Uh, <laughs> In the version of the prisoner we do not talk about. No, but he gets he gets to be number two against McGowan, so it's okay. That's true. Uh, Sean Connery, Jeremy Brett. Mm, that would have been good. Margaret Rutherford, Eddie Marzen, Toby Jones. He's in everything. No, can't use him. <laughs> uh, Helen Mirren. Mm. Liam Neeson, William Hartnell. <laughs> so I'm just thinking of Liam Neeson in Taken mode. <laughs> uh, Kenneth Connor. Michael Caine. That was specifically 60s era, Michael Caine. Mm. Um, George Lazenby. Ian Richardson. Ted Danson. Ah, but, you know, would it have been Cheers era Ted Danson or Good Place Ted Danson? I think given the parallels between The Good Place and The Prisoner, it'd be really interesting to see, uh, you know, the the Michael iteration of Ted Danson popping Mm. up. Although we had a run which is really interesting, which is... uh, Basically, the entire cast of Rising Damp and The Rise and Fall of Reginald Perrin. All of whom would have worked really well. Um, <laughs> we had Leonard Rossiter, Don Warrington, Francis de la Tour, and uh, John Barron, who played uh, CJ. Which I think, I mean, that was one, that's one of my favourites on the list. I think it's just been funny just to have that. Um, Gordon Jackson, Fabia Drake, John Le Mazurier, mm. Lindsay Duncan, Jack Shepard, Peter Sellers. I think Peter Cook shows up later as well. Uh, Joan Crawford, Robert Newton, Ralph Richardson, Roddy McDowell, Peter O'Toole, Richard Harris, Richard Attenborough, a young James Kahn, Alec Guinness, Gene Hackman, Dave Bautista. <laughs> now, I presume that means, you know, Drax, basically. Drax from Guardians of the Galaxy. That would be quite funny. Um, who, who is number six? Why is number six? <laughs> <laughs> um, a really popular suggestion was Tom Baker. Uh, Michael Jaston, David Warner, Derek Jacobi, Rick Mayle, Peter Cushing, Brian Blessed, a very loud, a very loud number two. Um, Six was alive. <laughs> Had to be done. Peter Egan, Terence Hardiman, Joan Hickson, Thandie Newton and Judy Dench. Mm, which would have been uh, basically M versus Bond in another dimension. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we'd like to thank everyone who sent in responses to that because um, it was really fun just to see what people thought. And a lot of names where you think, you know what? That would have been a cracking episode of The Prisoner. But yeah, maybe um, if you kind of follow us on Twitter, etc., we might do another one at some point about another aspect of the show. It's really fun to kind of get feedback from people on things like, you know, what they would have liked to see happening in the show as well. Yeah, the Rick Mail suggestion was funny because I, I, I started thinking of it as a, a sort of Blackadder-style version of The Prisoner, only number two is Alan Bastard, and number six is Lord Flashheart. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been great. That would have been like a, a, a comic relief-style parody of The Prisoner, <laughs> if only. 
Yeah, and my and my favourite suggestion was uh, John Barron, who played uh, CJ from Reginald Perrin, because um, that was suggested by one of our Twitter followers, uh, Darth Lebowski, who um, who also attached a quote: "I didn't get where I am today by not knowing why Number Six resigned." <laughs> <laughs> So we hope you're still with us. Um, <laughs> coming up next, we have an interview with the wonderful Rupert Booth. Now, Rupert is a writer and actor, and he is best known in the world of The Prisoner for writing the magnificent Patrick McGoohan biography, Not a Number, which charts Patrick McGoohan's career, you know, from his early career on the stage through to Danger Man, The Prisoner and beyond. And it was a great pleasure to chat to Rupert. Um, it's a fantastic biography. It really captures not only Magoon but also uh, the different eras that he was working in as well. Um, and it was great to get Rupert's insights into Magoon and The Prisoner. And we should warn you that the discussion contains some minor spoilers for the final episode of The Prisoner, Fallout. So you might want to skip over the first few minutes. Information. Information. So we're delighted to be joined this time by Rupert Booth, the writer of the wonderful Patrick McGoohan biography, Not a Number. Hi, Rupert. Hello there. What made you want to do a biography about Patrick McGoohan? Oh, um, fascination. Fascination with the man. I first saw The Prisoner in 1989 or 1990 on the old Channel 5 VHSs. Um, a friend of mine had the first one, brought Arrival and The Charms of Big Ben, and... <laughs> I, I, I was, it blew my mind open. I was just sat riveted to this thing and immediately had to go to the local library who had most of the rest of the series that didn't have Fallout. Um, eventually, so about three weeks later, I was in W.H. Smith's buying Fallout because I had to know how it ended. And I remember thinking, right, this will explain it all. Watched Fallout and went, right. <laughs> um, so, and, and, and so it started off as a fascination with the prisoner. But then as time went by changed into a fascination with McGowan himself because he so much is the prisoner. You know, there's so much of him in the series. Um, not to denigrate George Markstein or anyone else like that, but it, it, it clearly is McGowan's thing. It clearly is his statement. Um, and I think in a way it's kind of autobiographical itself. So um, over the years, I, you know, I read the articles and did the research and watched the films and all that sort of thing purely out of my own interest. And then this opportunity came up. Um, fairly randomly, um, so so it was a no-brainer, really. Uh, absolutely, I was I was very keen to put down my opinions, my thoughts, because he's such a divisive fake figure. Um, I don't think one could ever be. Um, what's the word? What's the word when you're sure about something? When you when you're definite? Um, can't remember the word. I'm only a writer. Um, but but uh, yeah, it, it, it's very much my my take on McGowan. Um, and I'm, I'm always keen to stress that because everyone's got their own opinions, which is a great thing. Uh, were you pleased with the response that the book got? I, I was. I was um, blown away by it, actually. I was really chuffed. Uh, the, the most <laughs> little anecdote, the most pleasing response personally for me to the book was um, a couple of months ago. Um, I, I was around at Ian Rakoff's place, he said, name-dropping furiously. <laughs> Um, and uh, a week or so before that, he said, I'm going to get a copy of your book. And my blood turned to ice. I just thought, oh, my God, oh, please. Oh, God, no. He's going to hate it. He's going to tell me I'm wrong. You know, he knew the guy. I never met McGowan. 
Um, so, so he, you know, that that was one week, and then a couple of weeks after, I go around for dinner, and then you know, bring a bottle of wine in supplication, and I go, all right, all right, come on, then hit me with it. Uh, and he he sort of sat and went, I think that's an extraordinary book. I don't know why you're not more widely fated for it. And and then went into detail for for the rest of the evening about how much he liked it and and how well written it was and stuff, which made me completely melt into a puddle. <laughs> so he was such an incredibly private person mm. um, and sort of famously didn't really like uh, having interviews or, or dealing with the media too mm-hmm. much. Did that make it difficult when doing the research for the book? No, because despite the fact he loudly said he didn't like doing interviews, he actually did quite a few of them. Um, when, when you stack them all up now, some of them may have been under duress, I'm sure. Um, but uh, earlier ones particularly, he, he's, he seems quite revealing. Um, comparatively revealing, and it was a case of building up all these things uh, from him directly. You know, like I say, there's quite a bit when when you aggregate the whole lot. Plus, of course, interviewing people who knew him and worked with him. Um, that's where a great deal of the information and insights came from. So, going back to uh, the show itself, mm-hmm. uh, do you have a favourite episode of The Prisoner? Fallout. Fallout. I suppose Once Upon a Time and Fallout. Yeah, they're really one episode, really, aren't they? Um, what is it about it? It's astonishingly brave um it makes you come it made me come back and watch it again and again um and it took a long time before i finally thought to myself okay i've now got everything i can out of that it's i think it's joyful i think it's absolutely joyous this fallout you know um despite the fact that the, the, the machine gunning people down and all that sort of thing with all you need is love playing that that makes me smile every time because of of, of the uh, the piss take i suppose of society um, I like that. I like the fact he stood up and did that and went, no, this is bonkers. This is insane. Let's let's all sing about love and kill each other. Um, the the idea of um, expunging the evil side of himself, you know, as number one was was fascinating to me. Um, and 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 wonderful characters. You know, you've got Leo McKern, Alexis Cannon, and Kenneth Griffiths in support. You can't go wrong there. So uh, we've just been talking about the episode. Uh, Do not forsake me, oh my darling. Mm-hmm. Which is notable, obviously, for its lack of Patrick McGowan. <laughs> <laughs> so, how do you think that, um, as an episode, it shows how how much the prisoner was actually about uh, McGowan as number six? Oh, totally. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Forsake's an odd one uh, because for, Forsake to me is is the episode that is most like a standard ITC series. Um, it's all right, you know. It's all right. It's just surrounded by stuff that's so brilliant. That that um, I I always you know if ever I'm doing a watch through of the prisoner I know it's only 17 episodes but I still kind of go oh god it's forsake oh, oh better do it then um, and you're absolutely right it's because it's lacking his his personality the fire um, you know Nigel Stock is a, a a very was a very good actor and does a perfectly acceptable job but you really feel the lack of Magoo don't you I do certainly and do you think not to uh, criticise Nigel Stock's performance in the episode, mm. but uh, his performances in other shows and, and films, to mm. me, they were actually a lot better than they were when he was playing uh, the character in The Prisoner. I'd go along with that. I'd go along with that. I, I suppose, uh, you know, Nigel Stock number six comes across to me as being a bit bland. Um, now, whether that's simply because he's being compared to McGowan's performance, no one could ever use the word bland to associate with that. Um 
Uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it, it sits oddly. It sits oddly, does, does Forsake. And of course, knowing the production history, knowing he had to go off to the States to make money to finish The Prisoner, and uh, all that sort of thing, it's totally understandable as to why it happened, but it's a bit of a blip for me. Um, and and the, the romance side is odd. You know, the whole thing with Janet, it's kind of like, blimey, that came out of nowhere. Um, as, as a writer, if I was going to put that in, I'd have wanted to seed it somewhere beforehand and make more of a thing of it, so it suddenly becomes this gigantic reunion. It could become really powerful um, if you know if you if you took Forsake in a different direction, uh, had him finally free and reunited with the love of his life, except he's in the wrong body. Um, you know, you could do a lot with that. that I just think they don't do. But um, but hey, you know. And do you think that's one of the elements that? that slipped through when Magoon had taken his eye off the ball when he was away filming, that, that it was kind of slyly put into the, uh, into the episode just to provoke uh, Magoon a little bit on his return to show him what they'd done with the episode. I don't think so. I think it was literally a case of, all right, we can't have you, but we've still got to keep filming. Um, so, so it's going to have to be a body swap, you know, thank God it's science fiction. Um... But specifically the romance element. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a tempting thought, isn't it? Because there's, obviously there's no way he'd have done that. Um, so yes, I, I have thought that myself. That, that, that you know, it's kind of like, all right, the cats are where they all sit and rub their hands and go, all right, what should we do to him? Then I know we make him kiss a girl. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I suspect so. Or it may have been a case of like, you know, he won't do it. This is the only chance we get to do that. But again, I'd have made more of it. Then I'd have made it a bigger thing. I, I just think Janet's a bit bland as well. You know, sort of, she, you'd think that someone who could stand up to number six would would have fire in her belly. Um, like like Joan, you know. Um, but uh, but there you go. Uh, in your uh, biography, actually, you mm-hmm. you've done a wonderful job talking about McGowan's early life and career as well, which is which has yeah. been chronicled before, but it's never really been put together. And you have a really mm. interesting description of the way that uh, McGowan met Joan, his courtship offer, and how they kind of mm. uh, met in the theatre and carried on. To what extent do you think? Uh, Joan was kind of a you know an unseen but really integral part of of Magoon's character and his choices and you know his career and things like that. Oh, I think she was absolutely essential. I I think they absolutely um, two became one there. You know, there's there's a story um, from the era when he's doing Brand, for example, which illustrates that she you know very much took an interest in his career and his performances. Uh, it's something along the lines of, you know, she beat him after she she went to view every single performance of Brand and support him. And sometimes afterwards, she'd go into the dressing room and go, no, that wasn't quite there tonight. Um, you know, give him notes like that and or, or, or go, yep, yep, you know, you hit it. Um, I, I suspect she helped to give him confidence. Um, yeah, yeah. Integral, integral. As far as I can gather. And when you talk about his... Uh his interactions with various cast and crew members during um, his theatre time and early time mm-hmm. on television, mm-hmm. it really is clear that he, he did have a bit of a temper right from the offset. Yes, absolutely. He was clearly a very temperamental figure. Otherwise, he wouldn't be able to get those performances and he wouldn't have made something like The Prisoner in the first place. Um, but it seems to me that the temper flares when people aren't pulling their weight, aren't doing their job. You know, that, that, that was something that came up in, in interviews, either ones I conducted or ones that other people had done before me, again and again and again. That, you know, as long as, you're, as long as you're doing your job, um, or whatever area it may be on the production, he's right behind you. But if someone's fart-assing about, he'll have them, he'll lose patience, particularly on The Prisoner. And I, I haven't got a problem with that, to be honest. Um, I, I kind of agree. Um, you know, if someone's wasting your time and wasting your money, have a shout at them. It's interesting, because a lot of people 
they actually relate the same stories about McGowan mm-hmm. and they will and and both sets of people will say that he got angry with somebody on set for example but just mm-hmm. as you say some people say oh he should never have done it it was extremely rude there was never a situation mm-hmm. when it should have arisen mm-hmm. and other people will say yes that person was out of line and uh, yeah. and it was McGowan yeah. just trying to sort of keep the whole thing together in a very complicated production etc. Well, it was his series. I mean, I think I, I think if it was me and someone was wasting my time and money, I'd feel rather insulted by that. Um, I'd probably blow my top as well. Um, now, I'm not talking here about... I, I think there was a period where he definitely lost it and had a bit of a breakdown, which was around It's Your Funeral. Um, you know, you have Mark Eden telling that story of him strangling him when the, in the fight scene and, and seeing that, you know, looking in his eyes and going, oh, God, he's gone. Um, that, I think, was simply the stress of the production. You know, he said at some point he had three nervous breakdowns during the making of the prisoner, and I can well believe it. Um, but that's that's outside. You know, I think I think that's not his normal temperament. That's simply the, the having taking too much of it on his own shoulders. And I suppose also it's the you know it's the case of the perfectionist who's trying to bring yeah. his vision to the screen, and it's Absolutely. it's something that he's trying to get out there and translate for for people, and it might even be complicated for him to explain and for him to put forward. But he's he's kind of trying to get out there. I mean, like you say, it's a show that relates very much to uh, McGowan himself. I mean, number six mm. is the character, but more mm. and more it becomes McGowan. Yes. I mean, especially in Once Upon a Time, you know, Once Upon a Time is definitely autobiographical. There are instances where they're going back through number six's life. That happened in McGowan's life. Um, so, yeah, it was obviously very personal to him. Um, but I think, I, think, I think mostly it was just, it was simply his work ethic. You know, get in, do the job. Give it 100%. And if you don't give it a hundred percent, he's going to start snarling. How much do you think he was influenced by sort of working early on with Orson Welles? Good question. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I think it would have given him an awful lot of confidence and a boost, you know, to have Orson Welles saying that you're an intimidating actor. Astonishing. Um, certainly, obviously, he'd have been aware of Citizen Kane, which was made you know, very much in the same. Yeah, you know, McGowan is the auteur of the Prisoner, as Welles was of Citizen Kane. So that would have kind of been permission in a way. You know, you can do this sort of thing. Yes, you know, maybe you should even do this sort of thing. But aside from that, I mean, there's so little information about that time. It's very difficult to make a judgment. It's a very mysterious time. You know, I've seen one, two photos of, of that of that at most. There's an element of Wells working with his very collaborative troupe of actors and, and creators who we mm. had around. Mm. Yeah, there's kind of an element of that with some of the people who uh, McGowan chose to keep with him. Um, as well yes you know and he was very loyal to those people and he, and he kind of brought them into his circle indeed indeed um that's an interesting one about loyalty um because i'm not really sure it's my story to tell but but um i'm i'm lucky enough i met um, ian rakoff at the elstree event in january and we've become friends and he kind of feels that mcgoon abandoned him um now this is because mcgoon had to go off and do my stations ever you know uh, and he, he sort of got dumped with Tomblin, with whom he didn't have the same creative flair. And nothing was said on McGowan's return, you know, so so the loyalty... But then again, that's towards the end of the series. I think McGowan was exhausted. I think he'd reached the end of his tether by that point. Um, however, you also get stories like... Um, oh, no, who was it? It's not Annette Andre. She hated them. Um, who was the actress in Change of Mind? Angela Brown. Yes. She she related to the time where she had a lot of complicated technical dialogue to do, which never comes easily to an actor. 
um, and the studio floor is noisy as hell, and she just can't concentrate. And Magoon shouts, "I shut up!" There's an actress here trying to do these lines, and just really, you know, had her back and was supporting her and looking after her, um, and all that sort of thing. There's lots of stories like that, particularly with actors, I've found. Um, so yes, I mean, he obviously, you know, kept his got his creative team, and of course, a lot of people came over from Danger Man, didn't they? Onto the prisoner, so you clearly, you know, but I mean, everyone does that. I do that with people, you know, actors I've worked with before. I'll use them again because I know they're reliable. Um, they're going to deliver, you know. Do you think that Danger Man often gets sort of a bit underrated because it gets compared with the prisoner coming afterwards and the prisoner was so groundbreaking that people tend to overlook Danger Man a bit? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a very fair statement. Um, and it's a shame because Danger Man is an extremely well-made spy series, isn't it? It's very competent. It's very slick. Uh, I think they all hold up perfectly well today. Um, and, and John Drake's a fascinating character. He's not number six, I think. What do you think about that? I don't think he's uh, I don't John think Drake. He's, um, no. no, I don't think he's John Drake. They're different people, aren't they? John Drake's more relaxed and laid back than number six. Number six does not relax ever. I genuinely think that the the only aspect of the interpretation of who number six is is that it's, it's largely Magoon. But yes, how, it is. But how that fits into... You know the mythology of the show. I, I, I can't put it in words. I suppose maybe it's why he never gives his name. Yeah. Maybe you know. Maybe if they actually revealed his name, it would be Patrick McGowan. <laughs> uh, uh, stick that in Fallout. And you also cover uh, some really interesting aspects of uh, some of the kinds of decisions that McGowan made quite early in his career that mm-hmm. he he seems to stick to throughout. Um, he doesn't do any voiceover work. And also, he um, he shows very early on a real distrust and uh, and dislike of the media and the press. There's some yeah. stories about Cannes and things like that, where he, yeah. you know, I mean, those things seem to be set in stone very early in his career. And he's never somebody who's going to conform to the, you know, to the Hollywood actor kind of thing, which maybe that would have prevented him becoming part of that as well. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, his whole stance against that, you know, imagine if The Prisoner had been made now, imagine if it was Danger Man was being made nowadays and he had that stance. Um, you know, you can never imagine him being on Twitter or Facebook or things like that for a start, can you? Because they're far too invasive for him. I find him a bit invasive sometimes. Not Twitter so much, but, but Facebook. Um, yeah, I, it's a difficult one to discuss this one because, of course, at the back of the mind there's always got to be that thought of, well, what are you hiding? You know? Is it is it purely a case of I don't want to be misrepresented, which I'm sure it was to a very large extent, and the press, you know, even back then, always into a story, um, and will lie about people. Basically, will openly just lie about people, about famous people, and I'm sure he didn't want any of that happening. I absolutely believe his thing about saying, look, you know, work is work, talk to me, fine, but leave my family out of it. Um, it's nothing to do with them. Yep, I absolutely agree with that, um, and and you know, I think that's very fine and noble of him actually um i don't i've never found a particular incident that might have sparked off the distrust of the press you know i can't find an early thing where he's badly misrepresented or lied about or whatever the hell um so it, it was clearly a decision that he came to himself i mean very very intelligent man obviously clearly very aware of the media and how it worked um and indeed works now so um, I, I think his distrust was, was perfectly natural and perfectly reasonable, actually. But it is interesting that he didn't play the game, you know, that, that would have... I mean, imagine anyone turning down James Bond. Extraordinary. 
But, you know, for for the reasons that, that you know he stated the reasons that he didn't approve of Bond's character. It's it's a it's a character. You're an actor. It doesn't make you Bond. It doesn't mean you're like that. You know, um, Dave Prowse isn't really evil. I assume. <laughs> um, but but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's an interesting one, isn't it? I, I think there's no definitive answer to that, as is frequently the case with McGoohan. It's it's quite fun reflecting on that when several times in the course of The Prisoner there are instances where uh, number six reads an article in the tally-ho that appears to mm. have already been written before whatever well, yeah, free takes place. Yeah. yeah, free for all, absolutely. They do the interview and then it's already printed you know, before even before the reporters run away. I mean, it's all there, isn't it? That you know, The distrust of the press, they're going to just print whatever they like. You can say anything you like. Well, they, I mean, they do, you know, he's sitting there going, no comment, no comment, no comment, and they're just going, right, I'm writing this answer and that answer and the other answer. I mean, on your earlier point about Bond in particular and how, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's just a, you know, it's just a character to play and he's an actor. I mean, that, you know, that's mm-hmm. not unusual. He did always have an affinity, it seems, for going for roles that that are actually quite reflective of him as a person. So whether it's number six later on or... Or brand, I think most notably. I mean, yeah. he, he is that character. I, I I think I said in the book that the two defining, the really two defining characters that speak of Baguan are Brand and Number Six. Um, and you know the fact that he kept coming back to Brand, and and you know, so what characterizes Brand? Basically, massive, massive Catholic guilt. Um, and I think that was a huge part of his makeup. You know, I, I honestly think that one of the reasons why he turned down Bond was that he didn't quite trust himself with all the pretty actresses. And fair play to him. Fair play for being aware of that weakness, you know, which <laughs> all straight men have. Um, you know, so, yeah, and wanted to protect his family from that. Um, but I think I think, I think, think the Catholic guilt thing was a massive thing with him uh, and fear of God and all, all, the, all the crap that Catholicism pushes onto people. I'm just going to say it. What the hell? <laughs> what the hell? Um, <laughs> So uh, I, I think I think yeah that that didn't help him in life. We mentioned earlier about McGoohan at Cannes. Was that where he met uh, Cocteau? Yes, he'd um, he meets uh, uh, Jean Cocteau at Cannes, and then mm-hmm. it's interesting that in episodes like um, Dance of the Dead, mm. there's a there's a strong influence of of things like Orfe. Absolutely, totally, totally. In that respect, there are there are strange ways that you can view. I mean, if if the prisoner is his sort of masterwork. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think that, uh, as much as it is a story about you know a character called Number Six, as it is about Magoo, mm-hmm. are there are there elements of it that are really reflections on the interactions and the insights he's had um, in his life, in his career up until that point? Of course, absolutely. I mean, every every artist is influenced by things, and and kind of not to not to be denigrating about it. Everyone regurgitates what they've taken in. As it were, that's a horrible way to put it. I should I shouldn't have put it like that. Um, in in terms of art and influence, things like that. Yes, totally, totally. Um, but the key strength here is that the prisoner becomes its own thing. You know, the, you can definitely see the influences that lead to it. I mean, Danger Man's an influence, I'd I'd say, um, in terms of the basic character. You know, the guy who can win any fight and all that sort of thing. You know, Number Six is a little bit superhuman. Heroes don't birdwatch. Um, you know, he viewed him as a viewed him as a hero. Um, but um, yeah, certainly I'd say there's, there's a cocktail influence in there, especially as you say in Dance of the Dead, which is another one of my favourite episodes. Uh, do you think there are points 
in The Prisoner, in the production run, where you can see in the finished episodes McGowan's influence increasingly taking over every aspect of it to the point where some of the other people involved um, became a little bit disillusioned. Because we know that at, at, at some point George Markstein just mm. decided that he had done enough. Enough of this bollocks, yeah. yes, quite. Um, I think I think Mark Stein's the the particular one there that that, that stands out um, because I think he said that McGoon was getting his fingers into every pie and all that sort of thing. Now Ian Rakoff, when he's talking about editing and things like that, he, uh, he he's good about it. You know, McGoon would come in and sit and, and and watch and offer comments and generally be supportive and go away again. Um, very collaborative in that one. Sorry about the siren. Yeah, yeah, I. I think sometimes complaints like that are the result of the other person's disgruntled ego, because it seems to me that McGoon was incredibly collaborative. You know, you never hear Jack Champan having a go about him, do you? Um, McGoon would come in and let him get on with, with doing his designs and, and, and be very praiseworthy and all that sort of thing. Various actors, you know, all, all, all say how, how helpful and collaborative he was. So I don't, I don't think... I don't think he wanted to make sure he had control over the whole thing for ego. He just wanted to make sure it was right and as good as it possibly could be. I'm absolutely sure he he, you know, he was quite not egoless about it. No actor is egoless. No person is egoless. But um, I, I think I think that was very much a desire to to make it as good as it could possibly be. And this is why he had nervous breakdowns because he was putting so much of himself into it. Uh, mm. So we talk about uh, Patrick McGowan an awful lot in the context of of the prisoner but mm. um what would do you think are his other great performances uh, throughout his career because he, he did wonderful things yeah the man out there yeah. the armchair theater play about the russian astronaut i think that is extraordinary mm. i think it's a beautiful piece of writing um i'd love to take it onto the stage actually uh but he, he's stunning in that i think what do you think you know i was fully aware of the prisoner and then mm -hmm. And afterwards, you kind of want to learn a little bit more about Magoon simply because you mm. realise how much of him is in it. Um, I like him in um, Hell Drivers, All Night. Oh, Long. he's tremendous! You know? Yeah, and Brand, of course. You can't, yeah. you can't yeah. sell Brand. It's yeah. extraordinary. I, I find Brand very hard to watch. Um, it, it, it's Proust at his most Proustian, <laughs> but um, and 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 you know, Brand is a very dislikable character as far as I'm concerned. Now he makes it riveting and memorable and powerful. Um, yeah. You've got to wonder where that comes from. You know, the, the belief that Brand has in God, the unshakable, unwavering, rock-like, furious belief in God. And if you don't believe, then you shall be damned. You know, all, all, all that kind of bit is extraordinary. And it seems to me, despite being a very theatrical performance, because, of course, that was the style at the time of television. And, of course, it was a, you know, a televised theatre play, really. Um, it's still very truthful, that, 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 that thing. I, I think, you know, he... Like I go back to the Catholic guilt and Catholicism beforehand, I think that's why he responded so much to Brand. I think he saw himself in the character. Um, but yeah, the, the Man Out There is, is one of my favourite pieces of television, actually. I remember I, I got a copy of that, I um, think from Rick Davey, when I was writing the book, because that was before it came out on DVD. You know, the um, network released a lot of armchair theatres, but I had I, a, a nasty little grainy off VHS several generations down copy. It didn't matter. I was riveted by it. Um... Yeah, yeah, he's uh, he doesn't he doesn't really put a foot wrong very often, does he? He's a very consistently good actor. And even in things which aren't aren't the best, he's often he still he still puts the effort in. Like 
things like Baby, yeah. um, for example. Yeah, I know, it's, it's, it's very watchable for him. Um, yes, that, that must have been an I'll do that for the money job. I think there's another story you, um, you talked about where there are a couple of films which are pre-Prisoner he did, which he, mm-hmm. um, he did in all, like whilst he was contracted to, was it Rank? And he had to do them under contract. But then what happened was, um, yes. you know, he didn't, it was clear even to him then that he, he regretted doing them just because he was under contract. Because, yeah. he, you know, if he doesn't like doing something, he realises that he, he just shouldn't get into that situation. Is that where the control Absolutely. comes from? I think, I think, I don't think that's so much control. No, I mean, it is control. It's control of your own career. I, I, I think that's laudable. I think that's very laudable that, that he was able to stand up and go, no, I shouldn't have done that. That was a mistake. Um, a lot of people don't. A lot of a lot of famous people will kind of gloss over it and go, "Oh well, you know." Whereas he just go, "No, that that, that was I was bollocks then," um, which is yeah. But um, and of course he was lucky with Danger Man. He was financially able to pick and choose. You know, he didn't have to take every job that came. That might might be why he didn't do voiceovers and things like that. Um, but uh, apart from in The Simpsons, I suppose. But but again, you know, The Simpsons was quality. He regarded it as being high quality. Uh, you know, he, he he very much he seemed to have very little tolerance for crap. And fair play to him, absolutely fair play to him. After he moved to California, um, mm-hmm. pretty pretty permanently, mm. uh, he obviously became very good friends with Peter Falk. Uh, do you have a yes. particular favourite episode of Columbo of the many that he either was in or directed? I I've hardly seen any. For some reason, Columbo just doesn't grab me. Um, so I watched some bits and bobs when I was doing research. Um, so I can't answer that. No, no I don't have a favourite. <laughs> it's don't get me wrong. It's a very good series. I'm just I'm just not massively into detective things. Mm. You know, I'm I'm much more interested in the stories about him and Falk working together and, and becoming partners in cirrhosis, really. Um, you know, they seem to have a, a, a tremendous um, link as friends and as creatives, uh, which is, you know, I always enjoy reading about those sort of things. It relates to what you said earlier, but for all the stories that suggest he was um, kind of on his own and, and like to keep people out, when he mm. when he did meet somebody who he liked he, they were part of a you know a very robust bond i think although he he, he can come over that way I, I think it's misleading to suggest that he wanted to keep people out i think he was just very very selective um i think he was probably quite shy as a person i mean he, he was he says so in that, that lovely piece he wrote about about wooing joan uh, in the early days and he, he's talking about basically being a wallflower at this dance imagine it patrick McGowan being a wallflower shy and, and keeping themselves small. I think that's a very revealing thing. Now, obviously, he's a young man, very young man there, uh, and one changes and gets confidence as one gets older, but I, I, I suspect that was still in there. Um, and and so and then having become so famous, you're going to get a lot of hangers-on and a lot of bullshitters and a lot of people who want to know you not necessarily for the right reasons. I think he would have been absolutely aware of that. Uh, and very careful about it. I think he was quite self-protective, and certainly protective of his family. Um, the opposite of what Mark Zuckerberg wants. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg wants all of us to tell each other everything about ourselves. No, fuck off. I, 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 I choose who I, you know, levels of what I share with, with, with people. You know, someone I've just met on the street, I'm not going to 
tell my life history to. Um, so I think it's more a case of that. I think he was just very selective and took a while to trust people. But I think once he did trust you, you're in. And it seems to me that one of the ways that you could make him trust you is to stand up to him. You know, the lovely story of um, Adrian Corrie on an episode of Danger Man. She'd just been in the in the papers for having a child out of wedlock in 1962 or whatever it was. So, you know, a big thing. And and he's muttering about this and she gets wind of it. And so the meeting outside the dressing room and, and she goes, hey, Magoo, and I hear you don't approve of me. Fuck you. Um, after which he completely did the 180 and, and adored her. Um, and that's that, that seems to be, I think he tested people. And if you were strong enough, if you could stand up to him, that was all right. I think I think he distrusted weakness of character. Maybe it's interesting because these are all themes which, which, which appear very strongly in in uh, mm. in number six. I mean, it's it seems totally. to all come back to that. I mean, it's it's how he totally. how he pushes people, but he's just yes. seeking he's seeking an equal always. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, someone who will stand up to him and all that sort of bit. And I think I think that's why you get such different responses from actors. You know, actors, they either loathed him or adored him. And there seems to be nothing in the middle. You know, no one ever says, oh, yeah, Patrick McGowan worked with him once. Pfft, can't remember much about it. <laughs> no one says that. Uh, so I, I think that, you know, if, if an actor stood up to them, whether in terms of as, a, as a, a fellow human being or in terms of performance, you know, simply wouldn't be overridden by his strength of performance, um, and then that's, I, th I think that was attractive to him as a character trait. What do you think he would make of people still endlessly talking about the prisoner after 50 years? I think he'd be flattered, actually. I think he'd be slightly bemused by it. Um, I think he was always a bit freaked out by becoming a cult figure because he, he very much said people, you know, he made the comparison. In, in the Six Into One documentary, he's talking about um, Hitler at one point and the whole cultish thing and, and, and how it's a bad thing for people to follow a figure too much without thinking for themselves um, but I, I, I think deep down he was probably incredibly flattered because he wanted people to pay attention to this he wanted to kick people up the arse and make them stand up and shout and argue and go you can't do this to me, you, you can't put fallout out how dare you do this to me, I wanted a, a proper ending you know um, and so to be provoking debate still 50 years later, surely he'd have been a bit kind of, oh, oh well, good. You know, that's, that's, that's what I wanted. Uh, I hope. I hope. So thanks very much, Rupert, for joining us. It was fascinating chatting My to you. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Um, what are you currently doing at the moment? Well, um, the thing, I'm, I'm doing 500 million things, none of which I can really talk about. But uh, the one that um, I can talk about is um, a, a game, an FMV game, that's full motion video, uh, called The Shapeshifting Detective, uh, in which I'm, I'm with, this is with my acting hat on rather than my writing hat, uh, and I'm playing um, Chief Inspector DuPont in that, and that's coming out hopefully around October, I think, maybe, don't know, can't say for sure on that, um, and uh, yes. Well, well, thank you so much again for chatting to us today. Absolutely, my pleasure, thank you for having me. All we have left to say is... Uh... Rupert, be seeing, be seeing you. you. Be seeing you. <laughs> Information. Information. So, huge thank you to Rupert for joining us. It was absolutely wonderful talking to him. And if you're interested in Patrick McGowan as a person and his career, we do highly recommend the biography Not a Number. It's a wonderful book.
So coming up next is our usual roundup of everything that's happening in the world of the prisoner from Rick Davy of the Mutual website. Take it away, Rick. This is Rick Davy of the Unmutual website at www.theunmutual.co.uk with all the latest news from the world of the prisoner. Plans are being finalised for the Eternal Village, the prisoner convention, with Annette Andre and myself as special guests, taking place in Seattle, USA, on September the 9th. Now added to the schedule will be a live link-up via video phone with prisoner historian Robert Fairclough. Tickets for the event are still available from theeternalvillage.com. In other event news, more guests have also been announced for a celebration of ITC, taking place at Elstree Studios on the 17th of November. Shane Rimmer, actor and voiceover artist, who guest-starred in countless ITC shows and provided voices in series such as Thunderbirds and Joe 90, as well as appearing in Bond films and other blockbusters, is the latest guest announcement. Tickets are still available for this event also, with more guests to be announced. Check quitmedia.co.uk for more details. In other news, the final part of Titan Comics' The Prisoner four-part comic, The Uncertainty Machine, is now available. The four-part series will be repackaged into a single volume later in the year. The Vapors, the 1970s rock band, most famous for the song Turning Japanese, are performing a special concert in Port Merion's Hercules Hall in November. And finally, check out the latest issue of Mini World magazine. It contains a six-page feature on the restoration of an original prisoner minimoke. Join me again on the next Tally Ho podcast for all the latest news from the world of the prisoner. Be seeing you. So thank you, Rick, for bringing us all the latest news from the world of the prisoner. Rick will be back on the next Tally Ho podcast. That's it for us for this episode, covering episode 13 of The Prisoner. Do not forsake me, oh my darling. As always, we'd like to thank everyone who listens to the podcast and shares the episodes on Twitter, Facebook, etc. We'd like to thank everyone who gets in touch with us when our episodes get put out and tells us um, what they like about the episodes, wants to talk about The Prisoner, or answers some of our sort of silly questions that we put out there, such (laughs) as our one about um, who would make a really good number two, which we were discussing earlier in the episode. If you do want to uh, get in touch, uh, you can find us on Facebook. Uh, We have a page, Time for Cakes and Ale. Uh, You can find us on Twitter, where we hang out quite a lot, at TFCAA. Or you can find us on the website www.timeforcakesandale.com where you can always uh, leave a note in the comments section underneath each episode. Yep. And if you get our podcast through iTunes or some other podcast service, please do think about leaving us a review because it really does help get the word out there about the podcast to have some reviews on the system. And finally, if you're curious about how we put together um, these episodes of the podcast, we were interviewed by friend of the podcast, Pete Horgan, for the Jepstones tech blog for a new series called The Tech Behind, all about what goes on behind the scenes in making these episodes, uh, how we got started as a podcast, uh, what kind of equipment we use, the software we use, and really everything that we've learned over the last year and a half of doing Time for Cakes and Ale and what advice we would give to people who are thinking about starting a podcast. So if you're curious about that, you can read all about that in the Jepstones Tech Behind blog, which you can find at jepstones.com. 
But that's it for now. Next time we'll be talking about episode 14 of The Prisoner, Living in Harmony. But for now, from the Tally Ho podcast, be, be seeing, seeing you. you.